0: back here again with the looking glass forum we're attempting once again to break through all the disinformation all the lies and all the distortions of the modern media so you can see the true facts of history in this american revolution thanks again for returning Welcome back again here to the Looking Glass Forum. And we're doing our level best as normal to bring to you some perhaps controversial and challenging ideas that you haven't heard before. Or look at uh, some some subjects that you haven't really perhaps contemplated in their full historical analysis, let's say. So today we're going to look at, as we usually do, um, some topics of political ideology and religious cultism and the power of human belief and it's apparent to me that as human beings we can believe in whatever we choose to believe in so whatever we focus on and ingest internally within our our psyche and within our mindset really can become our frame of mind, It, it can become our belief if we allow to if we choose to and like many other idea viruses let's say like as we might get into in this uh, this topic this uh, episode you know things like Scientology are pretty well known and they seem kind of kind of uh, on the fringe they can't kind of seem kind of strange side cults that people wouldn't normally you know average people wouldn't get involved with yeah, obviously, have to be very wealthy to kind of level up within the uh, the doctrine, within the teaching, within the ranks of their of their levels. And like many other things, we have to really expose the hard truth. We have to take a look at what's sometimes you know difficult. And we're not trying to pick on anyone or to castigate anyone's sacredly held beliefs, but we need to look rationally at some of the difficult subject matter that doesn't get approached in the media, in the newspapers in polite society let's say and so in this case we're going to really try to uncover the roots of an American religion an American religio-cultic system whose power is pretty well invisible it's a clandestine a sect that goes pretty well under the radar so that you know people don't know a lot about it, and it's generally accepted as an offshoot of Christianity. And in the cases of some of these articles that we'll take a look at, it's an offshoot of uh, Protestantism, and, and that's how that's how an article by some Jesuits that's how they described it. And what we're discussing is the religion begun by Brigham Young and Joseph Smith called Mormonism and it's really based on the Book of Mormon and it's really based on Joseph Smith's account as a young man of an angel who spoke to him and gave him insight and this was a cult insight that no one else had and the angel Moroni was able to contact Joseph Smith and he was able to, and, and according to his testimony, to write the, this information down. And this is how we get the, the Mormon Church, the, uh, the Church of the Latter-day Saints, LDS. And what we'll discover is that LDS, the Mormon temple, is so disconnected from the Bible, from biblical texts as we understand them, King James Version or otherwise, and that they, they have their own Bible, their own Book of Mormon, and, the, uh, and this is supposed to be a third a testament. So we have the, 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 uh, the, new, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and then the, the Book of Mormon is supposed to be a modern Latter-day Saints testament of the Bible. And it's supposed to be revealed knowledge, and it's supposed to be kind of like a Bible part three and it's it's really a fascinating subject and there's a lot of mormons out there who are positive people they're good americans they pay their taxes they love their children they want to know god and they believe that the book of mormon is true and from my accounts from, from reading the book of mormon i don't look at it as it's it's an interesting document but it's really a mystical an arcane document. And as we're going forward in this study, we'll have to point out that all the leaders of the Mormon church, the Mormon temple, including Joseph Smith and Brigham Young both, and all the leaders going forward are going to be high-level Freemasons. So the the Freemason, the Lodge of Freemasons, is very active and very, you know, it it takes a, a, a large... It's a large piece of the puzzle in place when we're looking at this so that we understand that these men were were Freemasons who were initiated into into the those degrees. And um, Joseph Smith discussed how he was initiated to the sublime degrees in Freemasonry. And so a lot of this esoteric symbolism and a lot of the connotations that that arise that are not immediately apparent become explained when we understand that there was this ritual magic going on in place uh, in in Joseph Smith's life. It was something that he was practicing along the lines of uh, trying to, in the case of the author that we're gonna check out here, did a really interesting look at Mormonism and it's it's apparent and can't be disputed that Joseph Smith was involved with ritual magic when he was younger and this was something that this is what the was the point of view of their family at the time having come out of vermont being a very poor family but apparently the influence of esoteric ritual practice was something that influenced them greatly and we have to point out to here that we're getting into a time in american history that's very fascinating because it's going to go into the 1860s 1850s 1860s and right at this time um this was a point in American history when we were gonna deal with the Civil War. Slavery hadn't been repealed or, or emancipated in the South. And uh, there were a lot of uh, slaves, who, black people, who were trying to flee to the North where they could be free. And also at, at that time, in 1833, at Yale, they would establish the Skull and Bones Society, which would was something we discussed before. The Order of Skull and Bones, 322, would be uh, the senior year student society, so it would sit there as if it was a fraternity, a simple frat club at the college. But it was it was a lot more than that. It was it was imbued with power from the people who who had intention that they would establish a, a, a political power base and aristocracy within American society. And they were, as they had always done, passed this powerful legacy to their sons. And they would do it from behind the clandestine efforts of the Skull and Bone Society. So that was in place, too, right around this time period. So there's a lot of different strange kind of secret society clubs being established. And this was right after the the Morgan Affair, which was an event in American history that's not very well known, but it kind of ties in here. Because before, right before that, before the 1830s, we had William uh, Captain William Morgan, who himself was a Freemason, and was moving up in the degrees at that point within the lodge and for whatever reason he decided he would come out of the lodge and write a book exposing their rituals and their secrets and this is something that is not something you you can do safely when you go into their their order and you take their bloody oaths and you promise to swear and to conceal and never reveal the secrets of the lodge then that then that's your you're expected not to do that. So in this case it became very public when William Captain William Morgan was killed by the Freemasons and was when he went to before that when he went to court he was surrounded in the court by the judge and the, the different attorneys who were all Freemasons and he was you know treated very unfairly and ultimately disappeared and killed by the Freemasons. The uh, the press and the American public got wind of this and it exploded into a huge exposure. So if you go back and do a little check on the Morgan Affair, you can see that right there in the 1840s and the 1850s, the, uh, the Freemasons were being exposed and were being really kicked out of American politics. So it was no longer popular to be a Freemason and there was even a, a political party called the Anti-Masons. Very brief, short-lived Political party uh, who, who existed to kind of capitalize on this sentiment of Americans that they wanted the injustice and the unfairness of the Masonic Brotherhood, which was controlling a lot of politics, to be out of political affairs and to be and for the government to, to investigate. And so this took out tens of thousands of, of Freemasons out of politics and they were underground. So this is all kind of happening in the backdrop at this point when Joseph Smith is starting to come out and develop his Mormon church. And what we'll come to realize is that the Mormon church and its practices, including its handshakes and its secret oaths, is very reflective of Freemasonry. And it seems to reflect the same kind of ritual design, the same kind of esoteric, magical structure that relies on mysticism. And you can see that as we go forward, that a lot of the claims of Mor- the Mormon Church are erroneous, let's say. It. And um, this is not to say that we need to look down on, on people who hold these truths to be valid. Uh, there, there's a lot of uh, Mormons today in politics. You have Mike Lee. Glenn Beck is out there on the radio. He's uh, apparently a Mormon. And of course, you have Mitt Romney and his family who are famously Mormons. And it might be said that some of the early prophets, and it, it's important to point that out, that, that Mormon, Mormonism re- requires a central prophet. And there, there's always a head prophet, always a lead, a lead uh, master of ceremony, if you will, a leader of the, the sect. And this head prophet is the all-powerful kind of guru of their, of their religious practice. And this prophet has been established, was originally Joseph Smith, and then when he was out of the picture, it became Brigham Young, and then there's been this kind of succession of of prophets. I'm not sure what they prophesy exactly, but they hold this position, this head position within the Mormon sect, and it's a, a dictatorship where he ultimately, where the power is not shared. So as we're going through this, we're going to listen to a few different, um, interesting authors and we need to to be aware that the power base of Mormonism is political and they have moved very quietly to establish power. I mean, they, they really run the state of Utah. So we're talking about a system of belief here, a secret society, a religio-cultic system that is desiring power and it's very nationalistic so this is an american prophetic movement let's say it kind of reminds me of an american islam where islam had its founding prophet muhammad and the crystallization of their doctrine and their ideology is absolute and it's written into their their book of mormon into their code and it's really unchanging and um the power of the central prophet really cannot be questioned And he's a divine, a man of God, a Pope in the Vatican, if you will, you know, a prophet of uh, LDS religion there in Salt Lake City, which is their new Jerusalem. So the the beginning of this whole thing, it it, it takes place when, and you can imagine that Joseph Smith is a, a very charismatic figure. So he's able to, in the 1850s, establish these new doctrines that are nothing biblical, and once you get in there and take a look at it, it's, you, you know, it's more similar to, to, like I said, to Islam. Because it's a, a religious ecclesiastical dictatorship. And you, go, you don't get to question the complexity of their doctrine. And if you look at the doctrine itself, and you go into the, the letter and read the, the Book of Mormon, it, it reminds me of the Koran because it doesn't really have any definition or any real ideological sensibility. It's not really it's a complete and total departure from the Bible in in, in every way. So they're going to recant or refudiate the previous new or old New Testaments that we that we might find in the drawer in our hotel room or on our shelf, the typical Bible. And it's going to take this idea of Jesus Christ and the tribes of Israel and you know the whole thing it's going to just rewrite it on its face and retell an entire different history. That no longer requires a need for a Ten Commandments or a Passover covenant or, uh, you know, Jesus Christ to die for your sins on the cross in order to account for the uh, the sins of the world. Those, those kind of typical church Bible facts or, or the facets of our, our typical Christian faith are, 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 that you might see in America today, they're, they're just not present within the Mormon belief system. So it's a matter of wearing the right clothes. It's a matter of you know, doing which you're told on the right days and to follow through with their plan of, you might have the, uh, the young men who go around the neighborhood, knock on the doors, do the Bible tracks. There's a system, a program in place that has to be followed and that's really what it is. There's no there's no free will involved, I'd say. So I find it fascinating. Um, this is a, a new American Islam, if you will, and it's very powerful and it's, uh, it has a, a great deal of influence within our culture. It might not be apparent on its face. So I want to begin this, and we're going to be taking a look at Peter LaVinda does a book called, it's called The uh, The Angel and the Sorcerer. In this book, he points out that Joseph Smith, when he's young, is buying books of sorcery that were popular at the time. Uh, there were accounts of Simon Magus that were recorded by Agrippa, and there are, some of these books are, are heavily influenced demonology, so they're going to be accounts of the angelic, forces the uh, the angels and their languages and their you know the fallen angels their supposed sorcerer you know spells and incantations and these kind of things and this is the this is when um joseph smith is a young man and it's going to just kind of give us a reference point to understand what kind of thinking is going into place here like what what is the the root of this what is the the influence early influence on these men that they would try to create a religion which is pre- precisely what they've done. They invented a, a new religion. And like I said, the similarity there to Islam is uh, unequivocal. Even uh, Muhammad was supposed to be hearing from Gabriel and Michael that some of these, the angels were going to be instructing Muhammad according to the legend, according to the the, uh, the accounts. And in the same way, there are some angels that are going to get involved here, whether that account, those accounts are... accurate or not, according to the record, Joseph Smith is going to be spoken to and influenced and given information by the angel Moroni. And so we should already have kind of like, we should have some questions and some curiosity about this and the state of mind of people that would, um, find this religious devotion to be practical. And, um, so that's what we're going to do here. We're going to just take a closer look at the beginning of the Mormon, Mormon religion. And I'll point out that some of the early, I'll have to go ahead and, and we'll, we'll, we'll look into this as we move forward. I think it was Brigham Young. Some of the early prophets of, of, of the Mormon, you know, doctrine had attempted to run for president. And in some cases, um, those 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 campaigns or to run for president failed in one case uh, the, the the mormon prophet got arrested and they put him into a jail but the mormon supporters came out and there was a huge shootout because they came to get their prophet out of jail and so they have an undercurrent of absolute a move towards absolute political power And uh, we might point out that it's part of their doctrine and it's a part of their system of belief to believe that ultimately someday a Mormon man will come to power in the presidency of the United States and will fix America, will correct and right the wrongs of American politics and make America into a Mormon state. And and so this furtherance of this thinking becomes apparent if if you're a fan of The Handmaid's Tale and you'll like to watch Hulu, and you watch the show The Handmaid's Tale, you have to understand that the theological theocracy that they're attempting to build, it's being built, it's unspecified with its religious kind of pseudo-Bible doctrine and and everyone having to live like it's a little house on the prairie, and the handmaids, you know, have to wear these, it's, it's a dictatorship of religious extremism. But the whole idea is based on Mormonism so when you see the world the kind of dark theocracy and the the, the dystopian religious supremacy of their order it's all secret and it's all man driven and and the women are just you know breeders and this, this whole framework and in the beginning if you watch from the beginning episodes they have this point where there's some priests and some some um, Muslim clerics are all hung up on a rope on this wall, and this indicates that it's not a Roman Catholic order directly that's coming to power, and it's not a your local Presbyterian Bible order that's coming to power, and it's not an Islamic order; it's a Mormon order that's being that's coming to power in Washington D.C. and throughout America in. The Handmaid's Tale. So I just wanted to point that out. People, you know, noticed the the dilemma. They don't come out. They don't specifically say it. I never watched later episodes, but it's very apparent to anyone who has any understanding of these really just doctrines that that the Mormon sect is interested in taking power. It has a lot of history with the FBI. We'll get into a little bit. And I mean, for instance, uh, Mitt Romney's dad ran uh, for president. Romney for president way back when. Mitt Romney did it. He'll probably attempt to do it again. So on some level, inside the neat kind of trim, ideological framework of Mormon doctrine, they are expecting an expectant to come to political power within the United States. So you can imagine a Mormon fascism or a Mormon high level echelon running the executive branch, in my mind, is a very dangerous thing. And, and I don't mean to be, you know, religiophobic, but I wouldn't want to see Osama bin Laden become the president, and I wouldn't want to see a really truly full throated Mormon extremist come to power in the United States either. And these are men who are like Mike Lee, who, who who are thought might go to the Supreme Court, men who might go to the highest levels of power, men who are well-educated in the best schools. I was reading an article last night about Mormons who like to go to Jesuit schools in order to get the best education. So we're going to see some of these tenuous connections here. And it might be pointed out also that as Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and the the subsequent prophets are are making their move across America. They're trying to find locations where they can set up shop. And as they're moved west, they are ultimately moving towards Salt Lake City. But even at that time, Utah isn't even really a state yet. So, you know, Mormonism is taking a very interesting position within American history. And it's growing within America and will ultimately affect American politics, whether we are aware of it or not. So we have to be aware that there was high-level Jesuit priest who was connected with Mormons and this all ties in to the period because it was the same Jesuit priest who was communicating with Albert Pike and Albert Pike was a high-level Freemason he was we talked about him before in subsequent episodes he was the one of the men who founded the Ku Klux Klan he was a general for the confederacy that's fighting for the south in the civil war this is Albert Pike a confederate general Wearing the gray, fighting the the the, uh, the Yankees, trying to maintain slavery, and he was also one of Albert Pike was one of the men who was connecting with uh, with Mazzini and uh, in, in tied into the high-level Illuminati branches within Europe. So this Pierre de Smet, that's Pierre de Smith, Smet, S M E T, is going to be the man who's giving instruction and guidance to Joseph Smith, giving them funding keeping them on track and really revealing to them where they needed to set up shop, apparently giving him direction to go to up to Salt Lake city. So we're going to see this character, this, you know, infamous Jesuit priest, Pierre de Smith. And we're going to see that his influence over Albert Pike and Joseph Smith is incontrovertible. And it is also ominous, tells you kind of what is happening. And as we get into this episode, we're going to see how Mormonism is really, it might have a different name but structurally it's really just high-level witchcraft it's 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 high-level ritual witchcraft and we can see that in the the structure of the temple that's built in Salt Lake City we can see that in their practices and their secret oaths and as we go through this episode and talk to these authors we're going to discover a lot more about Mormonism than you might have ever known before so sit down Buckle up and let's uh, get ready here. We're going to take a look at this interesting analysis by Peter Lavinda an ancient, yeah, an ancient technology. So, just
1: just the Justice Smith family started out doing that, looking for buried treasure, uh, buried treasure or uh, maybe gold ore or silver ore, you know, underneath here, something like that, trying to find a source of income because they were desperate. They had really no other sources of income. Um, I mean, you know, there's this story that if you work hard, you know, and you're diligent about it, you know, you'll be okay. That's not always the case, as we all know, you yeah. can work very hard and be, and be poor. And the Smiths worked hard and they were poor. So Joseph Smith Jr. took it upon himself to see if he could solve the situation. And his sources of inspiration were books on magic. Now, I'm not making any of this stuff up. I know sources you're not. just <laughs> <laughs> sounds a little outlandish for the, the founder of a religion, you know, especially the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you know. Well, like, if, if, if,
2: if Peter, it's very much... So. The same with Scientology.
1: Well, it is, I make that point in the Angel of the Sorcerer. The Scientologist and the Mormons started with exactly the same magical text. They started with the books uh, uh, that were attributed to Agrippa, and that which were printed later in Francis Barrett's The Magus, a very, very popular book when it came out in the beginning of the 19th century, uh, around 1801, I think it was when it was first published, in England. And these books were available in the United States at that time. There were a lot of occultists operating out of the United States in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. Uh, The governor of the state of Connecticut uh, was an alchemist. Uh, I for had a large library of over 250 books on the occult, on ceremonial magic, on alchemy, on all sorts of spiritual subjects of that nature, the kind of arcane subject matter, like Rosicrucianism and that sort of thing. Um, the president of Yale University, uh, Harvard University, everybody was involved in some form of occult research. They even taught astrology for a long time at the Harvard Medical School. Yes. Um, so these were things that were part of an educated person <laughs> Uh, background. And so it kind of filtered down to the bookstores and the bookshops, the libraries that were around where Joseph Smith was growing up in those very uh, towns in upstate New York where he was growing up, which was undergoing a tremendous religious revival at the time. Uh, The Second Great Awakening, it was called. And you had a lot of revivalist stuff going on. You had a lot of religious sects coming up out of nowhere. Denominations were springing up all over the place. New prophets were were coming out. And here was Joseph Smith, a young boy, around 12 years old, is when he began to do this divining. And by the time he was 17, he was talking to the angel Moroni. He had gone to the woods uh, on the uh, autumnal equinox, September 22nd. And for the next number of years, he kept going back year after year after year until he was finally allowed by the angel, according to his story, to take the golden plates that were buried under the earth and transcribe them and actually create the Book of Mormon. This is the story that has been told. The Mormons change some of the details. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> according to them, Joseph Smith was just a pious kid who was out the woods praying. You know, an angel appeared to him and gave him the golden uh, plates. But in actuality, uh, he was performing works of ceremonial magic. The first reports of what he was doing that were first published show undeniably that he was working uh, rituals of ceremonial magic. These are the same rituals that L. Ron Hubbard and Jack Parsons would later use in the late 1940s and which eventually led to the creation of Scientology. And Uh, 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 JPL. Well, yeah, and the Jepropodium lab, too. It's the same it's the same thing. I mean, these two American religions I, I'm kind of hesitant to call Scientology religion, but they like to call themselves religion, so I'll give them the credit the benefit of the doubt. But these two churches, let's say, the Church of Scientology and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints had their origins in pretty much the same ritual magic. The same idea of casting the circle, uh burning incense uh, reciting incantations in the middle of the night on a, cer- a certain sort of sacred days of the calendar, in order to contact spiritual forces. Uh, this is what Joseph Smith was doing repeatedly for a number of years, for four years until he finally got a hold of these, these famous golden plates. Now, of course. Whoever saw the golden plates, I mean, Joseph Smith claimed there were golden plates. In the beginning of the Book of Mormon, uh, you'll find testimony by witnesses who claimed that they, too, saw the golden plates. Uh, Several of these witnesses later recanted their story, but that's another another topic. But there were plates on which were inscribed this entire history of America uh, before the arrival of Columbus, before its discovery by, by European settlers by European uh, pioneers, and that forth So this is a long story, and it's the history of the Jewish people, by the way. So this is the history of Jewish people who uh, fled at the time of the destruction of the first temple, of Solomon's Temple. So we're talking about, you know, 700 years before the Common Era. They came somehow in boats across the ocean to what is now America, and this, this Jewish tribe, set up shop here and then the, the, what we read about the Book of Mormon is a history of how the tribe split into two factions fought each other uh, one side won, the other side lost and as the, the, the so-called good side was losing uh, they decided to write their history before it was lost forever onto these golden plates, bury them in the earth and this is where Joseph Smith found them the plates were written according to Joseph Smith in a dialect called Reformed Egyptian. Uh, This language does not exist; has never been seen to exist anywhere. Um, And Egyptian had not yet been completely deciphered at the time that Joseph Smith was claiming uh, he could read Reformed Egyptian. Uh, The Rosetta Stone had just been discovered. The uh, work of uh, uh, translating. And finding out what all the letters and the hieroglyphics meant was still in process. So people could say anything about hieroglyphics. I mean, uh, Tom Cagliostro, for instance, uh, claimed that he understood what the hieroglyphics meant. They were a mystical kind of language back in the 18th century before Joseph Smith. Uh, he founded, Cagliostro founded an entire form of Freemasonry called Egyptian Masonry that was based on, uh, this idea that the hieroglyphics are a mystical language. Joseph Smith picked up on that idea, claimed he could read these hieroglyphics and therefore was able to transcribe the Book of Mormon. Uh, The technique is fascinating because it comes straight out of the Middle Ages. Uh, Joseph Smith would put what he called a showstone, like a crystal ball. Today we would call it a crystal ball. In those days it could just be a rock, maybe it was quartz maybe it was crystal, maybe it was just a regular rock, into a hat, into like a large hat, like a stope-like hat. He would stare into the darkness at the stone. He would see visions, And in this particular instance, he would see the language being translated from the golden place, and he would dictate what he saw to a scribe. There would be someone there taking his dictation as he talked. It was also called a peepstone. A peepstone, yeah. right. Yeah. Stone, uh, uh showstone, uh, the, the technique was called scrying in some cases. We would call it today crystal gazing. And it's very similar to a system that was used in uh, the early 1600s by uh, John D. and Edward Kelly in Prague at the time when they were contacting angelic forces. It was a magical system that's been called today Enochian uh, or the uh, the angelic language. And again, we have a strange alphabet, a very strange language, and we have somebody doing the scrying, somebody doing the peeping, uh, or divining, and another person writing down what was being dictated. It's almost exactly what was taking place in the early 17th century in Prague by Dee and Kelly, two English magicians. Uh, and Dee was the court astrologer for Queen Elizabeth the yes. first, Very famous man. Yes. Uh, a translator of some of the greatest uh, uh, Greek texts also or mathematics and physics. So we have a very intelligent guide that's getting involved in magic and doing all this transcription. And then uh, 200 years later, we have Joseph Smith doing virtually the same thing with the scribe of his own, dictating the Book of Mormon. And what we have today is this book, which claims to be the, the history of, of America up until, you know, um, the time of Jesus, according to the Book of Mormon, Jesus himself visited America, uh, was there after the crucifixion, and talked to the people uh, living in America at the time, the we remnants of the Jewish tribes. So we still have you know, this continuity from the First Temple, from the destruction of the First Temple to Jesus' appearance, all of it taking place in the Middle East, and yet we have here a parallel uh, situation, a parallel history in America. This is very important for Joseph Smith's agenda, because his agenda was to prove that America was the promised land, that the New Jerusalem would be built not in Jerusalem, in Palestine, but in somewhere in America. And that the the Jews who had fled had wound up not in other countries, but again in America, that this was their promised land. And Smith wanted to see the Jews of the different tribes come together in America and this is a common dream, not just of Joseph Smith, but of other other uh, people who are trying to promote this idea as well. And this is necessary to understand. It's necessary to understand this, to understand, you know, what the implications might be for a, a Mormon presidency or a Mormon administration. Because there's a definite political agenda. I mean, Joseph Smith ran for president, something that a lot of people don't know or yeah. don't remember. So the first Mormon to run for president was Joseph Smith himself. Uh, the year that he was assassinated, he was running for president. He, at that time, was the head of the largest standing army in the United States, second only to the United States Army itself size, and the largest Masonic organization in the state of Illinois. So here was a person who was organizing at a tremendous level and who had uh, designs of becoming the president of the United States and actually thought he was going to win and had already begun sending ambassadors around the foreign countries. So this, the political agenda and religious agenda for Joseph Smith were the same, uh, kind of against the idea of separation of church and state. Uh, Smith's ideas uh, became more and more bizarre by, by contemporary standards. Uh, the presence of three different gods at creation uh, plural marriage, we know all the stories about the magic underwear and polygamy and all of that. But these are all genuine principles, religious principles, that Joseph Smith had created, that Brigham Young had tried to put into into effect in a much grander way when they finally made it to Utah. And all of this was going to be the way, you know, the belief system of, of the Mormons. They gave up some of this. In order to belong to America as one of the, the American states, when Utah changed the statement. but it was an accommodation. It was called the Great Accommodation. They accommodated American law uh, and then repudiated their practice of polygamy, among other among other things. Well, I want to These interject states. something yes, here, Peter. They still practice what's called marriage behind the veil. And that's a very, very secret uh, type of marriage, and it involves plural marriages. Well, that's right. In fact, I, I talk about the famous case of the, uh, the Salamander Letter. Uh, and uh, Hoffman, the forger, who had for- started forging all documents in order to sort of extort money from the LDS Church. And he and his grandparents married uh, that way. Um, his grandfather married in plural, behind behind the veil, behind the curtain in yeah. the temple. So, uh, this is a lot of well Rodney's grandparents. Rodney's grandparents were also uh, plural, involved in polygamy. That's why they moved to Mexico. Yes. So you, this is very recent. This is in the memories of many living Mormons. Remember plural marriage back you know at the turn of the century, and as you stated, it still goes on today. Yes. So although they have officially said we're not going to be involved in this, and so they've made some official statements, they've never taken back the belief. They've never repudiated their beliefs, only their actions. I, I don't want to keep bringing up Romney, but a lot of people probably associate now Romney and Mormonism. So I want to point out uh, one particular aspect. When Romney was asked about Mormonism, his response is, I will only discuss my actions, not my beliefs. And this goes back to the law that was passed uh, by the Supreme Court in the case of Mormon polygamy. Uh, The Supreme Court upheld the separation of church and state, but, this is an important but, they said that we cannot legislate beliefs, but we can legislate action. And they said you can believe in polygamy all you want, you just can't do it. And, you know, I'm kind of with the Mormons on this one in saying that Okay, there is a problem here, you know. Um, at what point do we draw the line between religious actions and religious beliefs? I thought we're not supposed to make any laws regarding an establishment of religion. And so, of course, that's one of those First Amendment things that's open to interpretation. Because at what point do you say, okay, the government can't, you know, make a law about this? What if they say, what if they pass a law against, uh, going to communion in a Catholic church because it's unsanitary? Yeah, yeah. or especially in the Orthodox Church, I mean, as someone who's been to a lot of Russian and Greek Orthodox services in my time, I can attest that we have a big golden cup, and there's a golden spoon that goes into the cup, and, you know, each uh, communicant uh, is, you know, fed the bread and wine from the same spoon. Yeah. Um, So you could make a case. The department of health could step in and say, "Okay, we can. You can believe in all this all you want to, but you can't do it anymore." You know, so um, you know, I I kind of sympathize with the Mormons in their in their predicament, but at the same time, they really did get in quite easily on this issue, a little too quickly, if you ask me. Yeah. Uh, So it means it means that they were up to something. I mean, from my point of view, if I'm a true believer, and I really believe in Joseph Smith, and I believe and all the, the stuff he came out with, you know, uh, proxy baptism, you know, baptizing the dead, uh, plural marriage, the magic underwear, all the rest of it, then I'm not going to just give it up because the U.S. government tells me I can't do it. You know, I'm going to say I gave it up maybe, but I'm going to continue on privately. I'm going to make my actions and my beliefs run uh, in, in, in harmony. You know, so I don't know, you know, but these are things that have been going on. I, I listen to a debate, a vice presidential debate, mm-hmm. and I heard Paul Ryan say that his religion informs all of his actions as a person and as a political person, that you can't separate the religion from the person. And I thought to myself, aha, Such. I mean, Ryan's a Catholic, but yeah. Is his running mate. I think Romney's a Mormon. Are we to say that he can't separate his religion from his political life? If it's the same for Romney, then there are implications For a Mormon presidency. This is what to me is is a fascinating subject to to think about. Yes, absolutely. Well, in Mormon history, there had been several massacres that were carried out by Mormons. Can you tell us about that? Well, you have to know about the context. Mormonism. Uh, Joseph Smith himself was a very polarizing kind of figure. You we were sort of passionately in favor, passionately against him. Yeah. Uh, he was a self-proclaimed prophet, and at one point he was claiming divinity. Um, he had, of course, plural wives, which was a major bone of contention with the rest of, of the country in so many ways. Uh, he also created his own bank. He created his own currency. Uh, he was using fraudulent means, let's face it, fraudulent means to get investors to invest in his bank. He would fill a chest full of rocks covered with a thin veneer of silver coins and try to prove to people he had enormous chests full of silver, which of course he did not have. And that's what he did to gain you know, investors in his banks, which then went belly up in the, in the 19th century version of what we're going through today. So. All of this was going on. People were getting passionately involved in the question of Mormonism. They realized that he was not Christian in any mainstream sense of the word. Uh, Although Jesus Christ was important in the the whole story, he was about as important in Mormonism at the time as Jesus is to Islam today. Uh, Both religions regard Jesus Christ quite highly, but uh, to Islam, uh, Jesus was merely a prophet, not the Son of God, and Muhammad was the prophet who replaced, basically was the seal of the prophet, the last prophet. Joseph Smith kind of saw his role the same way. He was extending or he was perfecting the system that Jesus had started. So you have a lot of violent tendencies starting to brew uh, against the Mormons. They were kind of kicked out of Ohio. They went through Indiana to Illinois. They were getting too powerful in Illinois. Uh, Joseph Smith was getting very autocratic. Uh, he was running for president. He was making a lot of people very nervous. Like I say, he had the largest standing militia in the country, second only to the US Army. This guy was a military and political threat, as well as a religious threat. He was arrested for treason uh, regarding actions he had undertaken in Missouri, uh, with the groups there, with this uh, Mormon uh, organization there. Uh, people had been killed. Uh, in Missouri, there have been violent acts between Mormons and non-Mormons. There, people have been assassinated, people have been murdered. Um, Joseph Smith was finally arrested uh, for this, and while he was in jail, the jail was uh, attacked, was raided by anti-Mormons. Uh, a gunfight ensued, and Joseph Smith was murdered. He was assassinated uh, the same year that he was running for president. So, this then sent a shockwave the Mormon community. Uh, there was danger of a Mormon uprising against the U.S. government. Uh, the, the governor of Illinois was, was really nervous about this and was making sure, trying to make, do as much as he could to calm that down, but at the same time, he had to make sure his militia was ready to fight. The tension was very tight, and orders had gone out uh, to arrest many of the other Mormon leaders. So bring up Young who so at that point was sort of the number two man, the golden boy, replacing a series of golden boys uh in Mormon history up to that point. Uh Brigham Young, a great organizer, uh, decided what he was going to do was he was going to beat the, the federal marshals and escape before they had a chance to arrest them and possibly close them down forever. So he took his people uh in February, in the dead of winter, and fled from uh from Illinois Across the Mississippi River and started heading into Missouri and then to points west. This was a horrific, uh, expedition because everyone was freezing. They had very little in the way of, uh, uh, victuals and stuff to, to keep them together along the way. They had to stop several times along the way. Uh, people died of explosion. They died of starvation. Um, finally they make it to Utah where they set up camp as we all know in Salt Lake City. And that was going to become their new headquarters. Well, Salt Lake City in those days was not part of the United States. When Brigham Young actually went there, it was part of Mexico. This sounds like an outrageous thing for people to believe, but Mexican territory went up and included Utah. It included, of course, Arizona, New Mexico, large parts of California, Texas, all the way up into Utah. So Brigham Young thought he was safe there. Uh, the Mexicans weren't really setting up any troops that far, they just claimed the territory. The United States hadn't sent any troops there because they didn't have that territory. And the Mexican-American War had not begun yet, so Brigham Young thinks he's pretty safe there. So pioneers now are passing through Utah in covered wagons, the famous Conestoga wagons, going to California. They're on their way west. So. It's go west, young man, go west. And so we have a lot of of, uh, wagon trains passing through Utah, uh, sometimes sending up uh, wagons for supplies. They will buy supplies, food and water and things in in the Salt Lake City and then move on. Well, at one point, at a place called Mountain Meadows, uh, one whole wagon train passed through the, the area and there were rumors that the people who had killed Joseph Smith, who had assassinated him, at the jail in Carthage, Illinois, were in that wagon train. And that was all the excuse anyone needed. The Mormons were already a little irritated at the non-Mormons passing through using their territory. Although they were fine, you know, as far as selling themselves was concerned, they realized that they were considered... Uh, sort of alien creatures by the rest of, of, of the American people. And there was a lot of tension between them and between the others. Uh, and this just erupted. Brigham Young was still alive. He was still running the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The, um, the, the details are a little murky, but what we do know for sure is that a contingent of Mormon raiders, like a militia group, accompanied by certain members of the Native American population, then went and attacked the wagon train. Uh, As usual, the trains went into a circle, like you see in the movies, they tried to defend themselves, and it was working for a while. There was a kind of a standoff, and success was not happening. So what what was important was the Mormons that tried to pretend that they were coming to the rescue of the wagon train. So the militia came in, you know, like the cavalry in the movies, they show up at the wagon train, saying, "Listen, the this is we're surrounded by you know Indian territory. It's very dangerous. We're gonna we're gonna save you. We're gonna rescue you and bring you back to Salt Lake City. Don't worry about it." What happened was they separated the men from the women and children. They took the men a little way away from the wagon train and massacred them, killed them every single one. Yeah. Then the women and children were taken out, and with the exception of the very very young who would not be good witnesses. The other women and the women, all the women, and the older children were also massacred, were also killed. And their bodies left there. And the bodies were left there for years. They were eventually found later and buried by a commission that was investigating the crimes. Was so that was, was yeah. that called the Meadow Mountain Massacre? Mountain Meadows Massacre, yes. Yeah, multiple. We know now that Brigham Young was aware of this before it happened, he did not say, go out and kill all those people. He basically did a sort of mafia god thing, you know, will no one remove this thorn from my soul, you know, um, he had this sort of uh, Nixon-esque, you know, boy, I wish somebody would do something about those guys, you know, that kind of thing. Basically giving the words, go and do something without actually saying it. Uh, a lot of the so-called Indians who showed up for the initial attack were not Native Americans at all. They were Mormons dressed as Indians to make it seem like it was an Indian attack. Because even the Native Americans at one point said, you know, we didn't sign on for this. Uh, You said we could plunder and rob the wagon train. You didn't say anything about killing people. So the Native Americans themselves gave up and said, no, we're going home. So it left it up to the Mormons themselves to finish the job, and that's why they showed up as rescuers, and instead slaughter them. Um, this was a major blight on the history of Mormonism, but it goes to show the degree of tension that existed between the United States and the Mormons who consider themselves no longer in the United States. Brigham Young wrote a letter to the President of the United States saying, you know, we love the United States, we appreciate it, you know, we think the Constitution is great and all of that, but we got to get out because, you know, it's just not home for us. No, we can't exist in this country. And that's why they went to Utah. And then eventually, they were surrounded. The Mexican-American War had taken place. The Mexicans lost a great deal of territory. They lost what we now know as Texas, California, New Mexico, Arizona, and all the way up to Utah. They lost all of that territory. The U.S. took it. So now the Mormons were in a bind. They either had to keep going, but there was nowhere to go because California was now part of U.S. territory, all those lands to the west were. The Mormons were basically landlocked. There was really no, work, no promised land for them to go. So they made what they were known as the Great Accommodation, and they gave up polygamy, uh, at least they said they did, in order to become part of the United States and become Americans. And they went through this major sea change around the beginning of the 20th century, in which they tried to portray themselves as more mainstream Christians than they really are. And if you really look at their teachings, and you look at at their own texts, not just the Book of Mormon, but the other Mormon texts and the Mormon instructional materials, the theological texts, and all the rest of it, uh, and Joseph Smith's own writings and his own pronouncements and Brigham Young's pronouncements as well, you're going to see this is not any kind of Christianity that anybody would be familiar with. And I'm not saying that
0: to condemn Mormonism, or to attack it, i just state the facts as they are. Alright, so that's a really kind of nice introduction into the question that we're going to have to ask here, and it's how do we understand and place this religious cultic system, and how do we understand the, the doctrine by which it wills itself to power and sees itself as... Necessary means to an end when it comes to the executive branch and the presidency, and that uh, they seem to have very interesting designs on power. And they represent combinations of of freemasonic, occult, and ritual magic systems of Rosicrucianism. And uh, like we said earlier on, we'll have to go deeper into these connections with uh, Pierre de Smith, the Jesuit there in the. 1830s and 1840s and see how these systems tie together when we think about the clandestine introduction of the skull and bones at Yale in 1833 and that's, this is just before the Civil War and this is the same exact time when uh, the, the Freemasons and their men seem to be introducing this new Mormon cult system and we have to review this connection with Pierre de Smet, who is a French-born, actually uh, would be now Belgium-born Jesuit priest. And his influence over the development and the genesis of the, of the Mormon sect is profound. And it's, it's easy to find if you do a little search, the connections there. Uh, apparently, this French-born Jesuit found himself in the United States, working in the region of Idaho. He was apparently claimed that he was a, a friend of Sitting Bull. We all know that the Council of Trent declares that that all these American Indians were heretics and that a lot of Catholic policies were behind some of the wars of extermination that that are you know that people hold the United States guilty for. And these policies of extermination and war against the Indians were, in by and large, Roman Catholic policies. That's a whole other topic. If we look right here, if we go to an interesting website, this is Manresa, Society of Jesus. This is a, a, a Jesuit website on their history. It has a little write-up here about Pierre de and we'll just read it here. And as the Mormons were hounded from state to state, seeking a place where they could live in peace, they sought advice from Jean-Pierre de Smit, Society of Jesus. His description of the magnificent Great Salt Lake Valley pleased them very greatly. So Salt Lake City became to Mormons what Rome is to Catholics. And Jesuit de Smit stands there among the founder statues there in Salt Lake City. At the invitation of Cordeline tribe, P- uh, Friar Pierre-Jean de Smit, Society of Jesus sent Jesuits who set up a mission, the first one about 35 miles south of its present location in 1846, and afterwards they moved it to its present location. The church at this site, the old mission church, was designed by Friar Ravalli, an Italian-born Jesuit, and was built between 1848 and 1853, the oldest standing building in the state of Idaho, and the cradle of the Catholic Church in that region of North America. So we can go on here, it goes on to say that DeSmith, South Dakota is the home of Laura Ingalls Wilder, the author of Little House on the Prairie, and that the town formed the next spring was named for Friar Pierre de De DeSmit, who spent his life among the Sioux Indians. And a statue stands there in the city to honor him in Washington Park. So the Jesuits' influence in this region in America, and this is at a time when the states haven't really been formed yet, this, these are territories, some of them are territories that are being held by European kings or principalities of Europe, and ultimately they will be bought and they would be settled by and become states of the United States, obviously. But at this time, when Je- Jesuit de Smid is out there doing missionary work, and I have I put my fingers up by like quotation marks. Uh, he, he, There, He's actually spreading the power of the Jesuit order over this area. He's also playing a key role in the life of the newly minted Mormon cult and helping them to find a place. And it's very interesting that, that they were used to slaughter this wagon train of Protestant settlers. If you go back and the the uh, previous author was discussing the the slaughter there that took place, and they did it under you know the excuse that these were the people that were responsible for killing Joseph Smith or what have you. But really, these were hit squads that were being sent out by the Jesuits to kill Protestants and to shut down the Protestant expansion, and was being blamed on the Indians. These attacks were being set up to destroy white settlers who are Protestants, who are Baptists, and they were being done on on behalf of the Jesuits by these new Mormons who were bloodthirsty cult, you know, weirdos, and they were blaming on the Indians, which caused friction back in Washington and the States. They used this kind of friction for the settlers to be angry at the Indians, and you can see that the Indian wars are brought about in this way. And these are the same kind of subterfuge tactics that were being used uh, when uh, Pierre Jean Jean de Smith, this Jesuit here, was connecting with Albert Pike, and we can look up on other episodes. We're going to do more in-depth discussion about his connections with Albert Pike. Who was the the inventor of the 33rd degree Freemasonry? Albert Pike was the inventor of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, and you remember the the K is the 11th letter of the alphabet. So if you count up the 11th letter of the alphabet, it's K. If you have a KK and a K, it's really 11, 11, 11, and it's just really geometria for 33. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the KKK is really controlled by the 33rd degree of Freemasonry. And it's really just a, a, a boys club, right? Just, you know, the white knights of the clan. It's just another extension of the power of the Freemasons. And it was used to create racial problems, you know, at this at this period. And, and american history and that's what the jesuits are good at and so pierre jean de smith is being honored all over belgium as a great priest and a great missionary spreading the christian religion but really he's he's really part of, of a warring phalanx of an army unit that's what a jesuit is he is really a soldier in a unit and he's there to create chaos across the united states and we're really tying this this era together with pierre jean de smith this is the uh and we're tying it together with the emergence of the Skull and Bones Order at Yale and the power of Albert Pike uh, in creating the Palladium Rite and the high orders of, the, of Freemasonry and also with literally bringing about a new religious cult system in Mormonism. And we call it kind of the American Islam because they have their prophet and their lead prophet like Islam has their prophet and they have to follow their prophet and, and they have to fight and even if it means killing and shooting and creating an army, I think that the Mormons you know, represent the largest standing army or militia within the United States right now. And so we have to really discover what is the truth behind Mormonism. It's very secret. There's a lot of like really nice, you know, information on the internet, but it's really surface information. But when you get down into the, you know, joining into the, the nuts and bolts of it, you find out that it's really just another extension of the power of Freemasonry and the power of the orders of knights, which really is a fraternity. It's going to be male only. The women are just, you know, you're supposed to have multiple wives. So the women are just sex objects. They're really not playing a very interesting part in the religion of Mormonism at all. And it's the same thing with Islam. The women are just secondary. They're really just not really that important. So as we go forward here with this discussion, I found it was interesting, too, that Discussing the William Morgan affair, which goes back to the birth of the anti-Mason party. This is going to be in the 1850s. At this time, William Morgan was a, a Freemason and he decided that he found that it was uh, not what they had promised. It wasn't a Christian or biblical system. And he set out to write a book exposing the secrets and the, the symbols of Freemasonry. And they uh, they really ultimately killed him and ran him through court. And and um, it, it was an exposure of the power of Freemasonry in the courts and in government so that if you weren't a Freemason you really didn't have any power you didn't have any defense and ultimately the William Morgan affair when he ended up becoming, you know, disappeared and killed the people in America were incensed and enraged over the power of Freemasonry as a secret society over uh, American institutions and over within churches and within government and they or they organized um, a rally to push Masonry and Freemasons out of government and this started the anti-Mason party. Like I said this is in the late 1800s. So during this time you you have the Civil War you could have the the birth of the Ku Klux Klan you're gonna have the uh, the the rise of skull and bones at, in 1833 at Yale you can have the birth of Mason or Freemasons at, I'm sorry of uh, Mormonism and they're kind of like radical anti-government sect that they kind of they kind of started as almost like it reminds me kind of like how communism began and they have a very strange almost indecipherable religious doctrine and it goes to the power of people's ability just to believe anything that they just sit and decide that they're going to imbibe themselves where they're going to ingest into their mind they're just going to read and just believe whatever they're told so the power of people to be to be subsumed into to, to fall into the sway of ideological propaganda and idea viruses that are really cults is is just incalculable. So at this point, William Morgan's wife, after he's been done away with by the Freemasons, is going to be married into uh, Brigham Young and Joseph Smith's m- wives, and he's going to become one of their one of their you know stable of, of wives. That and, and it's just all very bizarre that how she ended up um, being moved from a. a a Freemason's wife over into the Mormon sect and then just kind of did away with her and must have been a terrible fate. So as we go into this, we're going to listen to another interesting uh, fellow, William uh, Schnabelin, and he has a very interesting point of view from being in the inside. Having experience with Freemasonry and Mormonism both, both, he has a very interesting inside perspective. So we're going to listen to this and you can watch this full video. It's called The Temple of Doom um, by William Schnabelin and there's a video um, on YouTube that you can check out. I do have a lot more to discuss because I need to really tie together these different interesting, seemingly seemingly loose ends. And are they really going to come together ultimately into one network and one kind of picture is going to emerge? And that's really the, the subtle and clandestine power of, of Europe and ultimately the high priest of Europe from Italy there in Rome, the Pope, and his man, the the Jesuit Order, who are there to make sure that the Pope's power is always growing and it's never waning, that all human creatures are subjected to his permanent, absolute, earthly, and uh, heavenly temporal powers that he claims to have over all the world, since he claims to be the Vicar of Christ, then all human creatures should be subjected to him, and that's what the Jesuit Order exists for. They exist to make sure that the Knights, the Papal Knights are acting in concordance with their wishes, and they, the Jesuits, exist to make sure that that the uh, Counter Reformation continues, and that the Protestant Reformation is destroyed off the face of the earth. So we can't have anybody giving away the secrets of Freemasonry. We can't, and, and, and if you do, then your wives are going to be married into Mormonism, and you can't have anybody, you know, questioning the absolute power of their system that they're building to to bring down the United States. So it's interesting that that the Mormons have such an obsession with the executive branch and that they, they seem to have it within their religion and their destiny of their, their belief system to become the uh, presidents and to control the uh, the executive branch. And like I said before, once they get control, like Mitt Romney type takes, takes control and they decide that only Mormons are allowed to have guns and they give out special gun rights and start the roundups, uh, you'll see that the... Handmaid's Tale is really going to come to life in, in truth. So so we'll get back to discuss this some more, but really in this episode we need to do the groundwork and just get the framework of our understanding about these different cult systems and what they're all about, and so we can see how they tie together. We'll expand upon these subjects in later episodes, but we, were, we just want to build out this original kind of introduction and we need to really understand how Mormonism affects the body politic and, and what the reasoning is behind it. And as you kind of lean into it and pay attention to what they really believe, you start to realize that they don't have a Christian belief at all, and that their belief systems and their orientation towards the soul this winter in and summer solstice is more like magic and, and more like witchcraft than it is Christianity. And they don't really have any interest in our, our Bible that you might or the, the Bible, the King James Bible that you might have in your home, but their book of Mormon is supposed to be transcribed from angelic forces, and it kind of reminds me of Islam again, because supposedly Muhammad, who couldn't read or write, was receiving these transmissions from Gabriel or, or something, and that he had these phenomenal insights, and that, that he would, you know, come up with this sacred text and, uh, and And it's the same way with Mormonism. There's really just an implausible story of kind of fanaticism that's kind of built out in the beginning, and then after that everyone else seems to kind of be consumed with the brainwash and the propaganda of their religious system and it doesn't really have any logic or any really and and, and it's really not open to the light of day so normal average people have no idea really what they believe but they're just asked to accept that it's an acceptable form of belief and it's protected uh, under American jurisprudence as religion so that's a good question whether we have uh, an understanding of what when we're saying freedom of religion what is a religion and if you're just Joseph Smith and Brigham Young you just whip together some kind of crazy mixture and hodgepodge of falsified, uh, idiosyncratic kind of racist uh, ideologies, does that constitute a religious system in truth? So anyway, let's go back here and listen to William Schnobelin and take a listen to his, uh, his perspective here on the whole matter.
3: I was very sincere. There was no question that I really was trying to be a good Mormon for some five years that I was a member of the church. So the point is, the Mormon gospel and the Christian gospel are very different things. And we're going to understand why that is shortly. But first, let's talk about the history of Mormonism. Uh, Most people know Mormonism was started by a fellow named Joseph Smith. Uh, Smith was born in the early part of the 19th century Uh, actually he was Joseph Smith Jr. his father Joseph Smith Sr. was a kind of a good for nothing fellow. He was involved with the occult. He was involved with water witching and divination. He claimed to be a treasure seeker. He claimed he could he could use his, his magical wand to go out and find buried treasure, which was a very popular thing people would do back in those days because fairly, you know, recently, before this time, uh pirates were sailing up and down the east coast of of America because this is right after the Revolutionary War and it was believed that there was buried treasure hidden here and there throughout the countryside in upstate New York. And so this Joseph Smith Sr. claimed to be able to find this stuff through his occult power. Uh, his mother Lucy Mack Smith said in her autobiography that the family cast magic circles and practice the faculty of Abrac. Now, you might ask, what the heck is that? Well, the faculty of Abrac, you may have heard the term abracadabra. That's actually a real magical word from a magical workbook. And the faculty of Abrac meant that they were practicing ceremonial magic. So imagine, here's this young man Who, along with his brother, was raised in a family, actually there was a couple other brothers, but we'll get to them later, Uh, totally involved in the occult. And he'd never been exposed to religion. But Now, here's an interesting thing that happened. During that time, there were these revivals that were sweeping the United States. And, you know, the, the, many of you have read stories about the Great Awakening and then revivals that followed that. And it got so many revivals hitting here. They actually called the area where Joseph Smith was raised, which was Palmyra, New York, the Burned Over District. Because it was like, first the Presbyterians would come through and they'd have a revival. And then the gates would come through and they'd have a revival and then the Methodists come through, you get the point you know, everybody was getting saved there was all this religious fervor and um, so Joseph Smith Jr. who was a young man, I think he was like 15 or 16 at the time, he was exposed to some of this revivalistic fury, um, fervor (laughs) and he got the family bible off the shelf it was obviously very dusty, he'd never read it and he was trying to decide what church to join because the Methodists were on him from one side and saying you should become a Methodist, and I forget what the other church was that you know, other congregational and Presbyterian was on him from the other side, and he should join that. Now, mind you, this is this is the official story. There are actually nine versions of this which disagree with each other. But I'm going to give you the official version just because it's it's simpler. Uh, but just 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 realize if you start digging into this history, it's full of contradictions. anyhow the story is he went out into this near his home to what's called today the sacred grove quote unquote and he knelt there and he began to pray. Now now notice what happens here. He's praying to ask God what church to join and supposedly all of a sudden he felt overcome with this vast darkness And, and he felt as if he would suffocate and die. The darkness was so profound and then through this darkness this pillar of light comes down You know, and and in this pillar of light are two glorious beings in white robes that look virtually identical. They have white hair, white beards, and white robes. They look just like each other. And these were two personages that he describes as being beyond description in terms of how
1: glorious they appeared. And the first personage gestures to the
3: second one and says, This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. And the second personage, who is supposedly Jesus, tells Joseph Smith that he should not join any church because all the churches of that time were wicked. And, you know, basically he said they had a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. And if they, you know, were teaching for commandments the doctrines of men rather than his commandments. And instead... He should go and wait further instructions. And Jesus supposedly also said that all churches currently active in America or anywhere for that matter were, <clears throat> excuse me, an abomination in his sight. So, whoa. That would be a pretty heavy message. And so what does Joseph Smith do? Well, paradoxically, he goes back and within two weeks after he supposedly had that vision, he joins the Methodist Church. It's like Uh, 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 uh. You know, because I mean, if I had something like that happen, I don't think I'd run right out and do exactly the opposite of what the vision told me to do, but he did. And he was in that church for a few weeks, but you know what? The Methodists kicked him out. You know why they kicked him out? Because he was an occultist and a glass looker. Now, what's a glass looker? Well, that's an old-fashioned word for a scryer. And you probably don't know what that is either because that's a technical word in the occult. A scryer is someone who has a crystal ball, and he looks in the crystal ball, and he finds stuff. And Joseph, like his father, claimed to be able to find buried treasure by looking in a crystal ball. And, of course, no self-respecting Methodist would stand for that kind of behavior. So they threw him out. Well, to make a long story short... He was visited later in his bedroom by this glorious being who claimed to be the angel Moroni. Now, I know if you've read the Bible, you've never heard of the angel Moroni, but that's okay. He's not in the Bible. Moroni is actually a, a dead prophet from the New World, according to Mormonism. He, he lived on the American continent some 1,200 years before this date, which was in the 1820s. And uh, supposedly, he told Joseph Smith that there was this book that told the history of Christian civilization in pre-Columbian America and then every year Joseph would go to this site and the angel would see if he was worthy. And after three years, finally, and again, I'm giving you the official version. There's a lot of, of very sinister stuff that we want not have time to get into here about this. Uh, but interestingly enough, every year, this the anniversary of this visitation was on a witch holiday, September 21st, which is the equinox. And in the third year, finally, On top of a hill somewhat near his home, he was allowed to dig up this book. And what it was, it was a box containing golden plates. And every plate was solid gold. And then supposedly they were held together by these kind of wire-like things, and they were written in some unknown language. And so he was allowed to take the plates, and he was given a mission to translate these plates from... Later on, we learned that they were written in Reformed Egyptian. Don't ask me what Reformed Egyptian is because nobody knows. But anyway, so he brings these plates back and um, starts translating them. And just to be very brief, because um, this is a very involved thing, the Book of Mormon, which is what these plates came to be known as, covers a period supposedly from 2247 B.C. to 421 A.D. And the story is basically that during the time of Jeremiah the prophet, when Israel was sliding into apostasy, that this family of righteous um, Jews, headed by a guy named Lehi, uh, was told by God to leave Jerusalem and sail across the Pacific Ocean to a new world. And so this family does it. And they, they go across the Atlantic, uh, the Pacific Ocean and land somewhere, we don't exactly know where, in the New World, probably in either Central or South America, and they set up a civilization there. And this guy had two main, two main sons, Nephi and Laman. And Nephi is a good guy, and Laman is a bad guy. He's like kind of the, the cane, if you will, of the family, the black sheep. And his descendants come to be known as Lamanites, and Nephites, Nephi's descendants are, of course, known as Nephites. And, and so the Lamanites gradually become more and more wicked, and, and eventually, now this is important, they are cursed with a dark skin for their, for their unrighteousness, and they become the American Indians. That's the, the Mormon explanation of where the Native Americans came from. Is that they are, this, they are Lamanites, and they uh, they are cursed with that dark skin because of the fact that they uh, they were wicked. The Nephites, however, are described in the Book of Mormon as being white and delightsome because they were good and they were righteous. So anyhow, there's these various battles that go back and forth, and I'll tell you, the I mean, the Book of Mormon. I actually, I need a medal from somebody, because I actually read the Book of Mormon through five times. And it's not for nothing that Mark Twain described the Book of Mormon as chloroform in print. It is very, very, seriously boring. In fact, believe it or not, one of the books, because just like, you know, the Bible has books in it, you know, the Book of Esther, the Book of Ruth, the Book of... Jeremiah, whatever. The Book of Mormon also has books in it, and one of the later books in the Book of Mormon is called the Book of Ether. Yeah, it's really called Ether. And Mark Twain said he read the Book of Ether and it put to sleep. So it's a very boring and complicated book. In fact, somebody said that Joseph, when he put the book together, he must have thought he was getting paid by the word, because it's very wordy, it's, it's very verbose, and it, it just Anyway, it's not an easy book to read. But to very price, synthesize it together, after the coming of Christ in Jerusalem, and you know Bethlehem and all that, they,
1: um, what happens is, when Christ is crucified over in
3: the Holy Land, in the New World, these cataclysmic events take place. There's earthquakes, there's signs in the heavens, and then after Jesus over in Jerusalem raises from the dead, He appears in the sky over the new world, and he comes down from heaven and sets up a church in the new world. And he has 12 apostles, just like it's like a a duplicate of the church that he sets up over in Jerusalem. And, And so everything is wonderful for a while. And he teaches all these gospel principles, you know, to these people who are at this time made up of both Lamanites and Nephites. And then he goes back up to heaven just like he did in the, you know, in, with the ascension in the in the Bible. But then of course apostasy hits and they start deteriorating, they become unrighteous. And one of the interesting things is the Book of Mormon teaches that when excuse me, the Lamanites repented and became righteous when were baptized. When they were baptized according to the ordinances of the gospel that Jesus taught, they turned white. So you know, it's kind of a very racist book. So anyway, there's they start apostatizing, and there's there's this righteous remnant that is left behind of the Nephites that are led by two two guys. One guy is named Mormon, and the other guy is named Moroni. And in Mormon doctrine, it's believed that when you die, if you're a righteous person, you become an angel. So that's why you have this angel Moroni showing up in Joseph's bedroom. Uh, And anyway, by the year 421, there's hardly any Nephites left. And this, this battle is taking place with hundreds of thousands of people whacking away at each other with armor and swords and breastplates and, you know, all this stuff on this hill in upstate New York that's come to be known as Hill Cumorah. And before the last Nephite is killed who I think as I recall was Moroni, he buries these gold plates which contains this whole history in this hill in in like a, a box, you know, inside a little stone vault. And they sit there from 421 all the way up until the 1820s when Joseph Smith is led to dig them up. Okay, after this, he, he meets some people and he meets this one guy and I'm not going to know all the details, and gave him enough money to actually publish this book after he's translated. And there, there's so many things about this book that are you know, and its translation and whatnot that are really very bogus. I mean, believe me, you have to really have, have your eyes deceived to the max to believe all the stuff about the LDS Church. Um, but in 1830, he started his own church. It was originally called the Church of Christ. And later on, it came to be known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And they taught that this is the only Christian church for the first time in 1,500 years because they taught that the, back in the days of Constantine, the original church that Jesus Christ started went to apostasy. And so from the period of around 300, <coughs> excuse me, all the way up until 1830, there was no church anywhere on the face of the earth. And that's kind of bizarre when you think about it. And then Joseph Smith restored this gospel. Now, i got to tell you about the great baptismal charade. Because, see, Mormonism teaches that nobody can be saved unless they're baptized by someone who has authority. Now, that, in a way, kind of makes sense. Uh, And they claim nobody had authority. And so at one point, Joseph Smith and one of his right-hand guys, Oliver Cowdery, I believe it was, were near, I think it was in Ohio, they were, uh, maybe Pennsylvania, I'm sorry, uh, on the banks of the Susquehanna River. And they had a vision where John the Baptist shows up, and John the Baptist says, you guys need to be baptized, And he's like a glorified, resurrected being, you know. And you'd think he would like maybe either baptize them or lay hands on them and give them the authority to baptize them, but he didn't do that. Instead, he says, you go down into the river and Joseph baptized Oliver and then lay hands on him to receive the Aaronic priesthood, and then Oliver baptized Joseph, and then you lay hands on him to receive the Aaronic priesthood. And you know, you re- this is in Doctrine and Covenants, which is one of the scriptures of the church. And you're sitting there going, uh, "Wait a minute!" <laughs> it's like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Because neither one of them had the authority to baptize. You know, because you can't be baptized, you can't you can't have the Aaronic priesthood unless you're baptized. And you get the point. I mean, it's 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 like totally confused. And of course, it says in the Bible that God is not an author of the author of confusion. Now, let's talk about the character of Joseph Smith. Because let me tell you, this guy was a genuine piece of work. I mean, he was a really unique individual. In many ways, he was quintessentially American. I mean. Um, He could have been a con man, he could have been a sorcerer, he could have been any number of things, but he was not a true prophet. Um, Just as an example, uh, he was a boaster. At one point in his life, this is what he said, he said, I have more to boast of than any other man. No man on earth has done such a greatest work as I have done, even Jesus Christ has not done so great a work as I have done. No man has ever been able to keep a church together. Not Jesus, not Paul, not Peter, but I am able to do it. He claimed at one point that he was descended from Jesus Christ. Hello, Da Vinci Code. Uh, He was a glass looker, which means he, he was a sorcerer. He, he was a money digger, and I don't mean in a sense like, you know, he was trying to marry rich women, but he, he believed he could, he could tell people where to go and dig up buried treasure, and he actually was convicted of that at one point, for being a glass looker and a disorderly person. The Mormon Church also teaches that when we die, all of us, it doesn't matter if we're Mormons or not, we're going to go before the judgment bar, and we're going to face three people, God the Father, God the Son, and Joseph Smith. And he is going to be one of our three judges. And I already mentioned he was a Methodist before they kicked him out. He also joined the Freemasons. We're going to talk more about that later. And he also, by revelation, married many other men's wives. He was a serial adulterer. At the time of his death, he had 27 wives that we know of. And many of them were actually married to other men. Uh, And interestingly enough, Nowadays, for example, uh, a couple years ago, this talk was given in 2010, uh, we had this FLDS church thing coming out, the fundamentalist Latter-day Saint church that uh, was accused of of trafficking and polygamy and and underage girls being taken across state lines to be married to old guys and, and all this kind of ungodly stuff. And, of course, the Utah Mormons are saying, we have nothing to do with this. This is nothing like our church. Our church is good. We don't teach this kind of stuff. The funny thing is, is that for, we'll talk more about this later, but just I'll throw this one little nugget at you right now. Joseph Smith got this revelation for about plural marriage. And the first woman that God supposedly told him to marry was a young girl who was living in his home. Her name was Fanny Alger, and she was either fifteen or sixteen years old. So this whole thing about the Mormons being so self-righteous that oh no, we don't we don't marry underage girls. Well, their founding prophet did, and that's a matter of record. He also died an occultist, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. So Joseph Smith, his first plural wife, was a fifteen-year-old girl, and that is a matter of public record. Okay. Uh, moving along because there's there's a lot of stuff we can kind of glide over here. And uh, they went from Kirkland, Ohio, where they built their first temple. Uh, they were run out of Kirkland, Ohio. They went to Missouri, where Joseph Smith taught that that was actually the Garden of Eden. Was in uh, near Missouri, Independence, Missouri. Then they were from Missouri and they finally ended up uh, kind of in the frontier, the west, the eastern uh, side of the Mississippi in a town called Nauvoo, Illinois, where they set up their own little Mormon colony. And by the time they got firmly established there, they had started sending out missionaries all over the world. And so all these Mormons were coming from England, from Germany, and of course from various parts of America. And... Nauvoo became the largest city in Illinois. It was bigger than Chicago at that time. And Joseph Smith ruled it like a tiny kingdom. It was here that he became a Freemason. And uh, interestingly enough, a few weeks after he became a Master Mason is when he introduced the secret temple ceremonies. It was in the Nauvoo period that it also started to come out uh, the idea of plural marriage that this was part of, of Mormon doctrine, that what was called the new and everlasting covenant of marriage was the idea that you had to have more than one wife in order to truly be saved. And that's in section 132 of Doctrine and Covenants, again Mormon scripture, and it's still there to this day. We'll talk a little more about that later. Part of what happened during this time is that, believe it or not, at this time, Joseph was crowned king of the United States. He ran for president in 1844, but in the middle of that, he was arrested for inciting a mob in Nauvoo to riot and trash a printing office. Now, why did that happen? Well, the the printing office had printed a newspaper accusing Joseph Smith of polygamy, which was, of course, true. But he denied it, and he had the printing press destroyed. Because of the riots, the governor felt that they had to send in the um, The troops, and to avoid a major scene, Joseph Smith allowed himself to be arrested. And he was taken to Carthage Jail in Carthage, Illinois, a few miles away from uh, Nauvoo, and there he was shot by a mob. And that was the end of Joseph Smith's life. And it's interesting, uh, he's described as a martyr by the Mormon church. Both he and his brother Hymer were killed by a mob, which isn't right. I mean, they were that was a great, great sin. His last words, the Mormon church teaches that his last words were, My Lord and my God. Well, not quite. Actually, local witnesses say what he said was, "Oh Lord, my God, is there no help for the widow's son? which is kind of creepy for two reasons. One reason is that he really was the son of a widow, but the other one is is that's the Grand Masonic hailing sign of distress, which is supposedly a thing Masons do if they're in grave danger of losing their lives, and it's a way that they can cry out for Masons to help them. But, of course, nobody did. And The other interesting thing about Joseph Smith's death, his murder, is that Mormons call him a martyr. And actually, that wasn't entirely true because he had a gun, a pistol that was smuggled into him in the jail, and he was shooting back at the people who were trying to kill him. And again, I'm not in any way excusing what this mob did. It was very wrong. It was murder. But, I mean, can you imagine, like, Stephen, the first martyr in the Bible? You know, like, they're stoning him, and he's picking up the rocks and throwing them back at them. I mean, that's not martyrdom. Martyrdom is just going to your death, like Yeshua went to his death, like a like a meek lamb to the slaughter.
0: So we're going to just give it a pause right here. You can see that what we're doing is really kind of fleshing out the background history, and it's going to get a little bit more in depth. And um, this is like a two-hour seminar that William does, but we're just going to take little pieces of it and basically look at the detail of the doctrine and the mythology that it's behind the Mormon uh, sacred praxis and you can see that they have a high temple ceremony and ultimately they are Templars in some sense because uh, they're f- f- fashioning their Utah uh, temple in the same kind of sacred geometry as Solomon's temple. And uh, so if, if you have to understand that on some level, if you look at the, he uh, goes into the imagery here, the pentagrams and the different um, occult symbolism that are etched into the masonry of the Salt Lake City Temple, you can see that what's behind their kind of ideology is nothing biblical at all. But ultimately, they they did what they did uh, in the past with Islam. They really forged this kind of strain of cultism. In in place, and they kind of developed it um, through the power of their personality and through the the, the Freemasons in the area, and basically uh, getting a rabble of useful idiots to forge this kind of history, and ultimately the Mormon cult is really, um, if you look at it carefully, with the way they wear the the vestments and they wear the um, the green aprons that. Um, And you'll see that in uh, Freemasonry as well. It's almost like a workman's apron, but they wear a little waist apron. It's green, and ultimately they have secret handshakes. And so ultimately, Mormonism and this whole pseudo-ritualism surrounding the angel of Moroni was just all complete horseshit. And for some reason, a lot of these people across America they really genuinely and with heartfelt serious um, their utmost belief they believe that, that these these books are really true and sincere and accurate forms of religion and they're true religion so ultimately they have the, 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 uh, the gnosis they have the secret knowledge that no one else has and they're informed while the rest of the world is in ignorance so it's the same thing you'll see with other religio-cultic doctrines as well. And um, ultimately, we have to go back and recognize that the actual roots and the actual foundations of Mormonism couldn't have been fashioned or built by anyone other than those who had the skill and the wherewithal to do it and and to direct such a large uh, ideological construction, if you will, out of the raw materials of America's countryside, and if you look carefully, you can see that the Knights of Freemasonry and just a few, a handful of the powerful Jesuit priests like Pierre-Jean de Smith were actually involved with directing the growth and development of Mormonism. And they uh, ultimately, uh, Brigham Young and all them, they would say that Salt Lake City uh, Valley, the whole area, was the new promised land. And it was the place that God had set aside for them, you know, since the beginning of time. It was like Canaan, and they were going to go take back this promised land of God. And uh, they didn't know where it was until it appeared that, you know, the Jesuit de Smitt comes along and tells them it's up there in, in the great Salt Lake City Valley. And, of course, this wasn't, as I understand it, even a part of the United States at the time. Um and ultimately, this whole controversy and, and you know, Pierre de, de uh, Jean de Smit was a, a Jesuit, but he was also a Frenchman, and so you have to take into account the French and Indian Wars, where the French were paying uh, the Indians to go and take scalps of certain settlers, certain pioneers and their wagon trains, and these are primarily going to be uh, Protestant, Methodist, Protestant, Baptist, Bible believers who are setting out to go and to, you know forge you know a, a destiny in the land uh, primarily yeah, the Catholics are going to stay in this the main cities of Maryland around their cathedrals right around their um, their monasteries where they can have access to the priests and and have the absolution for their, of their sins they had no interest in riding into into the West with their Bible. Which is what the Protestants were doing. So they're going to be met with Mormons who are going to try to kill them in the passes, and they're going to be met with wild Indian raiders who are going to be uh, radicalized by this kind of Roman Catholic French energy of hatred, and they're going to scalp these uh, these these colonial uh, pilgrims, if you will, pilgrims to the west. So we're going to go ahead and just take a little more of. Uh, Bill Schnabelin's interesting uh, Temple of Doom video that he does here. I encourage you to take a look at it, and it's going to go into more of the this kind of racial racist undertones. So Mormon cult thinking is going to be kind of crystallized within the 1850s and 1860s, where black men had to be slaves, or they had to be men who had run away from the slavery of the South and run to the North and were being, you know, kept as virtual refugees who are helpless people who can take care of themselves. They were not free people yet in the United States. So you can imagine that the Mormon ideological construct is going to hold that if you have black skin, that you've been stained by your sin for all time by God. And if you have white skin, then you're a beautiful, uh, you know, whatever, you know, that that somehow that your white skin has something to do with purity and dark skin to do with the, the stain of sin. And so this kind of like, you know, reprobate and prehistoric antiquated thinking is going to be distilled within the the viral intellectual propaganda of the Book of Mormon all throughout it. So you're not going to see any black people in Mormonism. Ultimately, it's just like the KKK that Albert Pike started. Um, you're not going to see a lot of black people in the KKK. You're not going to see a lot of pe- black people in the Confederate South when Albert Pike was a Confederate general you're not going to see a lot of black people in the Jesuit order uh, or in the Freemasons. I mean, I think, I think the Freemasons are ordered by a black lodge. So they have the, the uh, uh, Albert Hall, Prince Albert Hall Lodge for black men. If you're a black Freemason, you to the Prince Albert Hall or you're a boule. But ultimately that's just for black people, just like uh, the congressional black caucus. You can imagine you walk in there, you would see black people. And the same way the Masons are divided, if you go to the Scottish right, the Scottish it's going to be white men. So there's black Masonry and white Masonry, and there's you know white Mormonism, and there's you know you're not going to find it available to black people, because even though they downplay it, deep in the the, the construct and the, the bedrock of their scriptures, ultimately it's a racial uh, racial hate paradigm, and that black people are are subhumans, and this is the same thing that um, the Darwin felt. Um, that he felt that black people were just not very evolved yet. They were closer to the monkey species. And of course we know that's completely ridiculous and that we're all completely just part of the human race and that some of our ancestors were farther away into the Arctic, away from the sun and some of our ancestors were closer to the equator near the warm sun. And this has to do with how we develop traits and, and skin pigmentation and ultimately the way we look different weighs into our own prejudices and our fears about others and uh, otherness. So anyway, let's go into look at more of uh, Temple of Doom here.
3: They set up king- this little Mormon kingdom out there. They called it the Kingdom of Deseret, and. Polygamy was practiced openly um, and Young ruled the the kingdom like a religious tyrant. There was a lot of oppression of women. He had enforcers that were known as Danites and enforcers, avenging angels that would go out and they would kill people that were um, not following the Mormon gospel. And word of all this started getting back to the United States government. And outcries were in Congress to, to go in and solve the Mormon problem because there were all these stories of women who were being oppressed and, and some of it was sensational, of course. I mean, it was some of it was even worse than it really was. But I mean, you know how the media is even back then with, with newspapers and all that. So they actually sent in the troops. And uh, there was what was called the Mormon Wars. And by that time, a different guy was a prophet. His name was Wilford Woodruff. And the church basically came in, uh, pardon not the church, the government came in and said, if you don't stop this polygamy, we're going to take away all your assets. We're going to take away your buildings. We're going to take away your money. And you're going to be ruined. Because by that time, the church had built quite a prosperous little set up there in Utah. And so Wilford Woodruff in 1890 had a revelation, and they did away with plural marriage, at least officially. And that enabled a few years later for Utah to be able to become a state. Now, what happened is is the church got more and more established throughout the beginning of the 20th century. They tried to put polygamy behind them, and um, they began to move in the mainstream in the 1950s and 60s. They even had a guy, a Mormon, run for president, George Romney. And he lost the presidential nomination probably because of the LDS church's stand on black people. And for those of you that may not know this, for many years the Mormon church taught that black people are cursed with a dark skin because they were not valiant in the pre existence. See, Mormon doctrine is that, um, all of us lived in a pre existent state before we came here to earth. And that that there was this battle in heaven between Lucifer and the fallen angels and all of us who were good people and that the people who ended up being black sat it out and waited to see who would win. And so because of their being so, you know, whatever you want to call it, lazy, I guess, they were cursed with a black skin. And all the early Mormon prophets taught all this really racist stuff like, you know, as recently as Joseph Fielding, Fielding Smith in the 1940s, he said black people were all loathsome and shiftless and lazy and crooked and that no black man would ever get the priesthood. I mean, really racist stuff. Uh, blacks were allowed to join the church, but they could not be, hold the priesthood and they could not be sealed in the temple and interracial marriage is a nearly unpardonable sin and LDS leaders for many years taught that the African race is cursed and inferior in every possible way but By the 1970s, with the Civil Rights Movement, which started in the 1960s, increasing pressure from the United States government and other governments in the world, because by now the Mormon Church was an international church, that, that uh, the church was pressured to do something about this. So, Prophet Spencer W. Kimball had another new revelation. Now blacks have full access to LDS offices and LDS temples since 1978. Now, what are the cornerstones of the Mormon faith? Well, first of all, they teach that there was this great apostasy, that sometime around the 2nd and 3rd century, the Church of Jesus Christ began to apostatize after the death of the last apostle. By the time of Constantine, they teach there was no true Christian church left anywhere in the world. The world was therefore in spiritual darkness for more than 1,200 years. Uh, The light began to dawn, they say, with Luther, Calvin, and the Reformation. But it remained for Joseph Smith, Jr. to come along and restore the fullness of the everlasting gospel. Another cornerstone is that you need living prophets. That there must always be a living prophet on the earth to help people interpret the scriptures. And they have a saying, that a living prophet is better than a dead prophet. So in other words, the current living prophet, whoever he might be, outranks Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. The Bible, on the other hand, briefly, and I'm not going to belabor this point, but it says we are saved by grace through faith without works. And that's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Finally, what does the Mormon teach about uh, divine revelation? Well, they say the Bible is flawed and insufficient, that it has been translated correctly. It needs to be corrected by a living prophet. And it also teaches there's these other standard works, the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. There are many problems with these texts that I don't really have time to go into. Uh, But one of them is, and this is going to blow your mind, because it sure blew mine when I discovered it, the Book of Mormon contradicts almost all of the Mormon doctrines I have just told you. So in other words, you can read the Book of Mormon, and the Book of Mormon will contradict what Mormons are teaching almost everything. Like, for example, the Book of Mormon teaches that there is a trinity. In fact, the Book of Mormon teaches more clearly than the Bible does that there is a trinity. The Book of Mormon teaches salvation by grace. You know, all sorts of these things, and I don't have time to go into all of them, but just suffice it to say that that the Book of Mormon, which is supposedly the most correct book ever written, actually contradicts key tenets of LDS theology. Uh, Now, as I mentioned earlier, the Mormons teach that a living prophet is always better than a dead prophet. Now, here's the problem, though. Subsequent prophets contradict each other. For example, Brigham Young, in his lifetime, said that no black person would ever receive the priesthood until every, black, every white man on the face of the earth had become a priesthood holder. But along comes Spencer W. Kimball and contradicted that in, uh, in 1978.
0: And so you can see where we're going with this. I can't really go into the full, you really should watch the full uh, Temple of Doom video. It's, it's fascinating. He goes all into the actual core doctrinal detail. And uh, what I want to get onto now is, is, is how, how high-ranking the, uh, the Salt Lake City Mormon LDS Church has gotten within um, our intelligence agencies. And they're well-known for having a lot of wives and having a whole lot of children, having them all on food stamps. But they're all going to fairly high-rated schools, and their, their education is really highly rated. And within the occult apparatus, they're, they're going to be connected with Freemasonry ultimately and with big business and with the intelligence agencies within government. So you're going to see a lot of, like in the Senate, we're going to see more uh, Mike Lee is a Mormon, Mitt Romney, and these are usually going to be high-ranking businessmen who have big money. So this is an interesting International Business Times article. So we're at I B T or ibtimes.com and the article is called Mormons and CIA Torture Report Is LDS Morally Bankrupt Because of Involvement in Torture? So we're going to go into this article here, and the article is written by Morgan Windsor. A Mormon blogger is questioning whether the Senate report on the CIA's use of torture is a condemnation, not just of torture itself, but also of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, because two distinguished Mormons, Bruce Jessen and J. Beebe had prominent roles in the CIA's detention and interrogation program under George W. Bush administration. We contributed to this, our brothers did this, quote-unquote. Crawford, also known as John C., wrote in a post on the Mormon blog called By Common Consent, which was started in 2004 by a group of LDS church members to post and discuss Mormon topics. Crawford wrote that Justin, a former Mormon bishop, was paid $80 million for drafting the guidelines that developed the torture techniques used on suspected terrorists following the September 11th, 2001, and that uh, Bybee, a federal judge at the time, signed the memorandums giving the CIA's controversial interrogation program and its brutal methods legal authorization. If we, as a people, this is Crawford writing, are creating good men who do not understand that it is inherently wrong to torture even the worst offenders, then we are not doing a good job of creating good men. If we create men who understand that torture is wrong in the abstract, but when faced with the pressure of keeping a job, the greed of potential government largesse, the opportunity to justify revenge and torture in the name of national security, they fold and authorize it, and we are not doing a good job of creating good men, this should be a position for debate. I'm disgusted that it was ever, that it was ever, Garford wrote in a post-published Wednesday. Mormons, also known as Latter-day Saints, are heavily represented in national law enforcement and intelligence agencies. Returned Mormon missionaries are valued for their foreign language skills, absence from drugs and alcohol, and respect for authority, the CIA recru- recruiter reportedly told the Salt Lake uh, Tribune. Crawford concluded that if Justin and Bybee, who are considered to be good Mormons by the Church, represent the moral judgment of the Church's best and brightest men, we are morally bankrupt. Eric Hawkins, a spokesman for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, said, People, not the Church to which they may belong, are accountable for their own actions. To suggest that any action by any individual should be laid at the feet of the faith they proclaim to follow is insupportable. Hawkins wrote the International Business Times in an email Friday. So we can't say that we can unequivocally demonstrate that someone has poor character because of the religious tradition that they try to uphold, but it goes to the point that the the, the uh, Mormon uh, the high-ranking Mormons are really going to be represented highly within law enforcement and within the intelligence agencies, and we should be aware of what they believe and what they think and how that could affect the future of our country. And they're a uniquely nationalistic religion and they're a uniquely uh, Gnostic religion being derived from occultists and Freemasons. to under, you know They represent people who are going to celebrate traditions uh, on on the equinox of the, the sun and the moon and, and the, the, they're, you know, observing astrological events and, and, and holy days differently than other people. So we need to kind of understand where they're coming from. We have this Utah lighthouse ministry, dot uh, org website, which is a ministry of, of, of the, the Salt Lake city area, Salt Lake city messenger. And, uh, I want to read a little bit here, um, written that, uh, by the author, looks like Lamar Peterson. In our last issue of the Salt Lake City Messenger we pointed out some interesting facts that seem to point to a relationship between the Mormon Church and the CIA. For one thing we proved that a company which handled international public relations for the Mormon Church was used as an overseas cover for CIA activities. That was a Newsweek article, July 15, 1974 page 29. This was the Robert R. Mullen and company, Mr. Mullen, is the same man who wrote a book entitled The Latter-day Saints, The Mormon Yesterday and Today. This book is obviously written in the defense of the Mormon Church. And Anyway, it goes on. Uh, since the publication, uh, the, the Rockefeller Reporter on the CIA has been issued, it tends to confirm much of our research, uh, and it goes on to, to show how many um, Mormons who are going to go to college are going to be recruited into the CIA. And we need to understand what that means for the future of our country and how their particular ideological perspective in the Book of Mormon, which is totally a mystery to us. I mean, I think some of us might be able to understand the Quran and, and maybe the idea of, of where the Muslims are coming from more than, than Mormons. And they're very sincere. Mormons are very sincere about their beliefs. They are convinced that someday they will become gods who are going to set off to to start their own planets and create their own worlds, and they have a really complex cosmological belief system about the nature of the world. I mean, you really can't even be saved into an afterlife unless you have more than one wife, so there's these these strange points of interest that we might be aware of. And it kind of reminds me of Scientology, because, like how Scientology wants you to sign a billion-year contract. Um, The Mormon uh, cult, ritualistic thinking, and their their you know their rights of, of practice, if you will, are ultimately going to take us to a very unsuspecting and, and, and strange place, which means that their practices are identical to witchcraft on some level. the way they have their washing rights, um, and the way that they wear certain garments for protection. these are all kind of esoteric and arcane magical practices. And we have to recognize that during this time, these particular Mormons who were lawyers, educated men, judges, didn't think that the, the, uh, the harsh torture practices that were going to be adopted by the CIA after 9-11 were something that were morally questionable. So there's something about the belief system within Mormonism that suggests that if you have dark skin and you're an Arab, and uh, you're not a part of the uh, national enterprise of the United States, you're not a Mormon, then you get tortured by the CIA, then it's not really a big moral problem for them. So they had no qualms. And so it makes me wonder how it will go in the future um, dealing with a very large black populace in the United States that's getting unruly, that there's a lot of riots breaking out for different reasons, and we have to expect that our government— as people within the intelligence agencies and within law enforcement that are capable of handling these situations and looking at people uh, who are have dark skin as people who are human and not cursed by God. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, they're going after the KKK uh, as a terrorist group. What about the Mormon Latter-day Saints Temple? Are they uh, not a terrorist group? I mean, should we not? look at their credentials within our intelligence agencies and within law enforcement and ask them like, what exactly do you believe? Um, How much power does the prophet there in Salt Lake city uh, in the promised land there have over your mind? And uh, we have to ask ourselves, what would a Mormon administration look like within the United States? Like a, a new cult religious tradition that's been started just in the 1830s. And it's the, the Jesuits are behind it. And we have to ask ourselves, what is that all about, and what does it mean for the future of America? I'm trying to move forward and try to examine the underlying precepts and uh, and principles which tie together the uh, this new invention of the Mormon religion within America, which is like a, you know, it's like a Bible part three, and it tries to Picture the the prehistoric world of American Indians before Europeans arrive as a place where uh, the, are these are the ancestors of the Jews of old, and they fight out a battle, and and the uh, the evil Jews are black skinned, and the and the good Jews are white skinned, and they kill each other off, and and one of them buries the the Book of Mormon on these gold plates, and then John uh, or you know. Joseph Smith digs it up in the 1830s and no one's ever seen it but we're all supposed to believe this and the fact that real genuine intelligent people will believe this doctrine it, it like I said it goes to the power of human belief to just really kind of clasp and onto anything and, and just believe it if those around them and their peer culture and their parents and those who are the influencers in their lives make it crucial, make it imperative that they do so in order to receive love or stay part of the family and not be excommunicated and not be kicked out, you know, and sent away. Uh, so obviously, if you didn't want to be um, shunned, you know, you have to believe this and give it a good try. And so you have, you know, have these really interesting, intelligent people going through school, going into college who are Mormons. And so we have this interesting book, or interesting article here in the Gonzaga Bulletin, and we know that Gonzaga, the school, is a Jesuit university, and they have their bulletin there. And uh, we know that, despite the geopolitical machinations of the Jesuits to control the world for the Pope, that they have excellent education. They have the highest-rated schools in the world, all across the world. They are responsible for training a lot of our spies and foreign affairs. But this particular order uh, article is called Mormon student explains benefits of Jesuit education. this is the Gonzaga bulletin 2005, January 19th. And there's a picture here of a guy reading the book of Mormon. Jeff Rigby strikes a contemplative pose while paging through the book of Mormon in the lobby of the LDS temple in Spokane Valley. Rigby believes attending a Catholic university can benefit people of all religious traditions. For what possible reason would a Mormon want to attend a Jesuit university? Although small in numbers, there are students who belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, LDS, commonly known as Mormon, who have chosen to make Gonzaga their home for collegiate students. On the surface, LDS students attending Gonzaga may seem rather strange. This observation subsequently begs the question, what is it like? being an LDS student at a Catholic university. Before I proceed, let me first say that attending Gonzaga has been a great experience and I will certainly miss the school after graduation this May. Gonzaga has been the best experience of my life. However, as an LDS student, the Gonzaga experience has been an unusual one. Try to imagine being outnumbered on average by at least 800 to one at a school where it can be guaranteed that in all of your classes, you will always be the only one who shares your religious faith. And to that the sense of being out of place at most college parties because you belong to a faith that expressly forbids the consum the consumation the consumption of all forms of alcohol or tobacco. If you can imagine that much, when- then when you can start to get a glimpse of what it is like to be an LDS student at Gonzaga, the LDS experience has not con- st- has not do not stop in the classroom. A number of the Mormon students at Gonzaga are also varsity athletes, belonging to several other different teams, including cross country and golf. So, just we'll go on here just a little bit more. In addition, the social teachings of the LDS Church and the Catholic Church are very similar. Official Catholic teachings regarding issues like abortion, family, and the purpose of marriage, divorce, homosexual marriage, women in the Church, the role of Church in politics, and the humanitarian duty of the Church over is similar to virtually identical to the LDS Church. Of course, the Pope currently, uh, you know, this uh, Bergoglio fellow, he is currently, like, talking about how you know, homosexual marriage is a normal aspect of Catholicism, so it's, it's very strange right now, but his, to take his point here, that that they're virtually identical, that their systems and the traditions are virtually identical, and then you have the added kind of Islamic tenet here, where you keep, they're not allowed to drink any alcohol, so I find it very interesting that the Freemasons are behind the, the rise of Mormon cult systemology and i find it suspicious that they're creating a religion that's very identical to islam it's just a american nationalistic uh, one prophet only you know, you know, follow these certain ritual routines in a daily life. Uh, orders your life in a certain, you know, works based system that you have to follow. These particular, path- or planks to say these particular words. Follow these particular dates. Do these particular actions in a certain way. And if you do the ritual correctly, then you're accepted. And so it has very little to do with the actual faith of your heart, what you believe inside you, and it leaves Jesus Christ far behind. So we, we need a living prophet, and a dead prophet like Jesus is not that useful to us so these living prophets can correct or abrogate the uh, the words of the past. And, and so it's, it's very much like Islam today when they, when, they, when these current clerics abrogate the teachings of Muhammad who, uh, who had a, like a six-year-old wife. A six-year-old girl was his wife and who beheaded tens of thousands of people they they just change whatever is convenient at the time, and the power of the cult propaganda, the ideological constraints on the mind are so create so much intellectual slavery that people can't get free of it, even though they can see that it's preposterous and that it's completely idiotic, and the framework of it doesn't make any rational sense. They have to stay with it because they've been trained since youth, trained since they were children. They've watched and been made initiates into this. Cult rituals for for their entire lives since they were before they even were one years old. They were, you know, you can see that these religious systems are teaching children their their, their religious cult at the very beginning of their lives, and they have, they don't give the children any time to intellectually grasp it or choose it. It's just something that that is put on to them as the ultimate uh, socio cycle, uh, 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 psychosocial. Uh, impetus that drives them, and they can't escape it without tremendous depression or feelings of guilt, and their ability to reason is over, overdriven and overgoverned by the religious power of, of the cult itself. So, this is an interesting article. Let's go ahead and take one more little peek at an interesting uh, writer here. We're going to go back again to uh, somebody we're familiar with in these episodes, and it's Walter Byth. And he has a very interesting take um, on Mormonism. So Professor Walter Veith, I think he's from the University of Cape Town in South Africa, he's going to do a little breakdown for Mormonism here.
4: So there's the one movement that gives itself a Christian name. Here's another movement that gives itself a Christian name. The Mormon movement. The Mormons call themselves the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ. So this is Jesus Christ's name being used again. And the information comes from this angel over there, who is the angel Moroni. Here he stands on top of the globe, blowing his trumpet. Here is a typical Mormon church. It has no windows. Just like Masonic lodges don't have any windows. And the founder of the Mormon movement is none other than Joseph Smith. And Joseph Smith was a 33 degree Freemason. What does that tell you? Who was his God? If he was a 33 degree Freemason, then his God was Lucifer. Now, this is his follower, he's uh, the next prophet, if you like, the Mormon leader, Brigham Young, who followed up Joseph Smith. And he happened to be a 33-degree Freemason. Well, let's check this out. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormonism, its founder, Joseph Smith, was a high-level Freemason. His successor, Brigham Young, was also another high Freemason. According to the book Black Robe, Brigham Young was an intimate friend of Peter de Smet, one of the most powerful American Jesuits of the 19th century. Oh, we find them everywhere. But they're never in the front row, they're always in the back row, so that they never get bonksed, the others get bonksed. Well, here Joseph receives from the angel Moroni the gold tablets with this new doctrine on it now let's ask him himself whether what i'm saying is correct so it's always good to go to his own writings his history of the church In the evening I received the first degree in Freemasonry in the Nauvoo Lodge, assembled in my general business office. I was with the Masonic Lodge and rose to the sublime degree. There you have it. Straight from the horse's mouth. It cannot be denied. Mormonism was started by Freemasonry under the control of who? The Jesuits, yes. Now, what would be their principal... Move to start an organization that controls one whole state at least in the United States and together with Freemasonry controls the entire space program. Because anybody who's ever been in space is either a Freemason or he is a Mormon. One of the two. Very interesting. Not only that, they are the organization which have the greatest database on anyone ever living. They will find out everything from who you are, who your parents are, where you lived, what you did, every single thing about you, they have the database. This is a database that will be important one day when it comes to buying and selling and who's going to get what in the new dispensation. So they perform a very important work for the Jesuit order. If you look at uh, Mormonism... They have the same sort of ritual as Freemasonry. They have their aprons. The handshakes are a little bit different, as you see. They have their secret handshakes and all the paraphernalia that goes along with it. And this is their main temple at Salt Lake City. Again, you can see it's a pretty shut-up place. And uh, when you go and look there, you'll see the all-seeing eye with the Masonic a handshake in it, you'll see the moon, and the Baal Adad symbol, and the sun, and the upside-down pentagrams, former witch, Mason, Mormon, and Satanist Bill Schnurbelin emphasized that to the magician the inverted pentagram has one use only, and that is to call up the power of Satan and bring the kingdom of the devil into manifestation on earth. So here is the symbol right on the Masonic Temple. I took these pictures myself, so I know they're there. Uh, another quote, you will find the satanic pentagram invaluable and indispensable if you attempt to, attempt to draw from the infernal power of our Lord Satan. This extremely powerful amulet is the sign of the microcosm and is the summation of all occult forces. In other words, there is no amulet or talisman more powerful or even more close to as powerful as the satanic pentagram. It's interesting that it's on virtually every flag in the world, which is just another story. So if we look at uh, the Mormon temple, we will find them in their upside down form relatively frequently. All these symbols are all over the Mormon temple. The all-seeing eye over there, down there, symbols of the sun... They have circles. Originally they even had the dot in the middle, but they've become a little bit more um, clandestine and have removed those. Uh, On their other churches at the same site, you will find the Star of David. All of these features are in Mormonism. Here, the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood. They claim that they have the priesthood of Aaron. Now, by the way, that is a blasphemy, because who has become the high priest forever? Jesus. This means they are taking upon themselves something that belongs to someone else. They are robbing Jesus Christ of his role and his authority. Kathy Burns, Masonic and Occult Occult Symbols Illustrated, says both Masonry and Mormonism refer to the Melchizedek priesthood. In Scottish Rite Masonry, the 19th degree is called the Grand Pontiff. It is during this ceremony that the candidate is anointed with oil, made and proclaimed a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. I thought there was only one who was of that order today. Isn't that so? So both of them, Mormonism and Freemasonry, do this. Hebrews 5:5-9 5, 5, tells us, however, that Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but was called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But occultists, Mormons, Masons glorify themselves and take on themselves the honor of priesthood that was given to Christ alone. So when we titled the Siri total onslaught, you can see that every aspect of the world out there is designed to rob Jesus of his power and his priesthood. So, many of these poor Mormons, of course, have no idea, because again, in Mormonism, there are degrees, and you get initiated into higher and higher levels. So the lower levels know absolutely nothing. These poor little nun girls that walk around there, showing the people around, saying these wonderful things that they have read, and not realizing what they're even saying. If you look here at the Mormon uh, structures there, I mean, wow, it is impressive. Money was obviously not an object. What about Mormon doctrine? Let's have a look at that quickly. Section 27, Doctrine of Covenants, verse 11. Mormons Mormons teach that Adam was God. Journal of Discourses, volume 4. This is their official writing. That some sins are atoned for by own blood only. What does that tell you? Well, that's not biblical. The Book of Mormon, Alma 7 verse 10 says, Jesus was born in Jerusalem. That's not biblical, it's minor, but it's just irritating. Journal of Discourses, volume two, page 81 says, Christ was married to Mary, Martha, and others. Well, that'll give you a good reason to have a little bit of, um, you know, one wife. Why not? They deny the atonement. We're going through the same ritual again. One of the most pernicious doctrines ever advocated by man is the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which has entered into the hearts of millions since the days of the so-called Reformation. Joseph Fielding Smith, this is Joseph Smith himself writing, The Restoration of All Things, page 192. Well, doesn't that sound similar to what Westcott and Hort had to say, yes or no? Well, this is Masonic teaching and Mormonism is nothing other than a front for Freemasonry, masquerading as a religion of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Mormon book in 2 Nephti, 2, 22 to 25, says, Adam fell that men might be, and men are that they might have joy. So Adam fell so that men may have joy? Sterling W. Soule, member of the first quorum of 70, stated in the church section of Desert News, July 31, 65, under Christ, Adam yet stands his head. Adam fell, but he fell in the right direction. He fell towards the goal. Adam fell, but he fell upward. Jesus says to us, come up higher. Brigham Young says, the devil told the truth about Godhead. I do not blame Mother Eve. I would not have her miseating the forbidden fruit for anything. Through the gift of sin, humanity can achieve Godhood. Well, who's this speaking? Is this the devil speaking or is this Jesus Christ speaking? This is not their doctrine of governance. You were also in the beginning with the Father. Man was also in the beginning with God. Intelligence or light or truth was not created or mad, neither indeed can be. Again, you have it there. Mormonism is nothing other than Freemasonry. Masquerading as a religion of Jesus Christ Deceiving millions in the process and just being a tool for the Jesuit order the Catholic mass basically says the same oh blessed fault which does procure such a redeemer this is the figure of Christ that they have at the Mormon temple and uh, whether Jesus looked like that or not who knows the devil says he wants to impersonate Jesus so maybe Jesus looked like that I don't know I'll find out one day when he comes with the clouds of heaven. I wonder whether he did have a split beard, which is a symbol of a goat, but nevertheless. Here we have the leader, Joseph Smith. And if you look at uh, the figures over here, you'll see a beehive. And uh, if you go and look in the book Two Babylons, you'll see that the beehive is a symbol of paganism. This is pagan deities. Now, this is a rather fascinating story. You see, the world is being controlled by occultists. And occultists often run in families. So you have occult families which control the world. Now, some people go too far and they say, you know, there's a reptilian connection and there are reptile families. (laughs) Have you heard of those stories before? Now, let's not go there. Let's just say... Is it possible that there are families that control the world? And uh, they come from royal families. Now, some royal lines have been eradicated, eliminated, destroyed, wiped off the face of the earth through Jesuit intrigue. And others have been placed in power, like the House of Stuart, for example, in England. Every one of them high masons, those are all occultists. I mean, the queen is the queen of the Bilderbergers. How much more occult can you become than that? So here you have these royal families. Is it possible that these royal families are controlling much of the world and that the kings of the world will one day rule? Well, let's just have a look at something interesting. Here is the Howland family chart, which is published at the Mormon temple and tells us who is who in the zoo and who is related to this family. One family, so we're looking at great-great-grandpa. Let's have a look who his descendants are. One family, you can check this out for yourself, Joseph Ira Earle, very prominent man in his old days, Joseph Smith, there's the founder of the Mormon movement, he is part of that family, he comes from the same great-great-grandfather, Emma Hale comes from that family, Winston Churchill, he has the same great-great-great-grandfather. Franklin D. Roosevelt has the same great 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 grandfather. Uh, Richard Nixon has the same great 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 grandfather. Do you mean to tell me that President Ford had the same great 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 grandfather? Do you mean to tell me that George W. Bush Sr. had the same great 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 grandfather? George W. Bush Jr. had the same great 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 grandfather? Now, this is kind of strange. Do you really believe that though they come from different sides of the the earth's divide, that they all come from the same family? Do you think this is pure chance? I leave it to your speculation. I don't want to go further into this. I just find it fascinating that they all come from the same family, from Churchill Two. How many presidents in the United States? One, two, three, one in between, four, five presidents in the United States, plus those from the other side, plus the founder of the Mormon movement, all from the same family. It's very weird. Very weird. And then if you go into Mormons and NASA, you will find that all the top men, they were all Mormons or they were um
0: So as we're beginning to relate here in this kind of broken and fragmented discussion and these different audio clips and this kind of revelation, this exposure to this information is going to reveal what isn't clearly seen behind the veil. And it's not easy to kind of come by this understanding if you're not initiated into these different fraternities or if you understand the program. And so we're trying to bring out into public view so that you can kind of clearly see what's at stake and what the terms are of the situation. And we're we're trading man's need for religious cult systemology within his nature for the faith that we found in Jesus Christ. That's what's really at stake here. I mean, you have a lot of different things in play. I've talked about it before about how religion brings us to this place within society, within the peer culture within America. Even Donald Trump is running around talking about saying Merry Christmas again. And I don't have a problem with people's personal religious beliefs, but America isn't. A Christmas nation. We're not a Catholic nation. We're not a Roman Catholic nation. We don't all have pictures of the Pope on the wall and doing the rosary and celebrating Christmas. So we really need to stay away from like a state religion, even though you think that Christ, your Christmas is very Christian y, it's very Christy, it's on Christ in there. It's really a subtle, kind of sugar coated. Form of propaganda to bring you back into the Vatican, you know, the arms of the the Holy Roman Church. There, so you have to understand that most Protestants, most Bible believers, people in the founding of America, Baptists, Methodists, don't practice Christ- Christmas. Okay, they don't practice Easter. These are not practices that they have traditionally held. They're not Bible practices. They're not part of the Protestant faith or belief system. But they're being in- inculcated and introduced back into our lives through secular America, through public school system. Sometimes I think my kids only go to school um, just to take two weeks off for Christmas every year, just to kind of like, kind of like a star-studded, you know... Announcement about the importance and the significance of December 25th, the winter solstice, over our lives. So we all have to just, everyone disappears, all jobs shut down, everyone has to have a fortune to buy a bunch, a bunch of presents even though you don't work for three weeks because your job is down and you're, all the kids are home and there's all this excitement going on in the culture with Santa Claus and people are sitting on Santa Claus's lap and the mall getting their picture taken and, and so there's just, you know, people in Florida are putting, you know, cotton in the windows to simulate snow and there's reindeer so there's this Kind of like overarching propaganda push of religion. And it's really coming out of the Vatican, and the Jesuits are the foot soldiers and making sure that, that happens across the culture. And that's why we have to go back and we have to look at where these things started to take place. Because originally George Washington would start his revolution and, and, and attack the British on Christmas night on December 25th. And because the British were all Catholics and they were all getting drunk and they were spending the night. You know, and, and, and fr- you know frivolous partying, and they didn't really pay attention to the fact that the revolution was coming to them, and that they were setting up the cannons to set American independence into action. So, in order to maintain our American independence from the Catholicism of the British and from the Vatican and through the kings and the pontiffs of of Europe, uh, we need to you know constantly vigilantly in defense of our our freedoms here in our Constitution and so even this right and left paradigm between these communists and these nationalists today with with the Democrats and the Republicans brings us into a conflict within America so we're no longer looking out we're no longer staking our claim in the world or you know finding new mineral rights or growing our country we're just fighting politically within towards one another and so you have to see that this is a design So we're going to take a little quick look here. I found this interesting um, book by Eric John Phelps, and he does the uh, Vatican Assassins book. It's quite, I mean, just absolutely stupendous of a fascinating read. I mean, I haven't got all through it, but in chapter 13 here, we're looking at page 194. And we're, he's going on uh, talking about the Congress of Vienna in 1815. And then he was talking about the establishment of Shriner Freemasonry, which is very interesting. It's a mix of um, the, knights that the, the, the Knights of Malta and the Templar Knights and the High Papal Knights of Rome with the, the, the Muslims and a secret society. And so the Shriners represent this merger of Islam and the, the High Catholic Papal Knight orders of power into one system of, uh, of uh, esoteric occultism. So let's go on here. In the book, we're quoting from uh, Vatican Assassins. Years later, the Jesuits using Shriner Freemasonry would begin a powerful cult in George Washington's Calvinistic Republic of the United States. The new brotherhood would be called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mormonism, being another salvation by works, religion like Roman Catholicism, is its founder, Joseph Smith, was a high-level Freemason. His successor, Brigham Young, was also another... High Freemason. According to the book Black Robe, Brigham Young was an intimate friend of Pierre de one of the most powerful American Jesuits of the 19th century. Being the foremost Jesuit of influence among the Indian nations, de Smit, using Confederate general and Shriner Freemason Albert Pike, incited the His Sioux Indians to mass murder 700 white Lutherans of Minnesota, who were Northerners, while having procured the exemption of Jesuits from the draft. During America's bloodbath, erroneously called the Civil War, and I'll just pause it there. Uh, and we know that that, of course, the these Jesuits had incited the early Mormons to go and attack other pioneers and other white settlers, just like they incited the Indians, the Sioux Indians, to do it. And 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 in one of the earlier clips, we're talking about the how the Mormons had attacked and killed man, woman, and child, every single one of these people that were in a wagon train who were probably Lutherans in the same case. So let's go on. DeSmit personally visited Young, and this is Brigham Young, on his settlement in the West, furthering the Mormon agitation for the Mormon leaders sought to create their own nation and thus were considered so dangerous to our union by President Abraham Lincoln, knowing that whatever enterprise the Jesuit order is involved in, it was either secretly controlled by the Brotherhood from the beginning or its leadership was later subverted And so we asked the question, what service does the multi-million dollar masonically controlled Mormon headquarters in Salt Lake City, Utah, provide for the Jesuit general and his high command? Dear truth seeker, the service is the genealogical record keeping so accurately maintained by the Mormon hierarchy. You know that they're very interested in having all these genetic records. And so if you want to get a blood test and have some genetic test on yourself, you're basically going to send your records to the Mormons and they're going to They have this really elaborate computer database that has all the genealogical blood and DNA records going back for the last 200 years. So let's continue. And for what purpose does this serve? The practical non-religious answer can only be to keep track of the world's racial Jews, enabling the Jesuit general using his fascist military dictators to locate, arrest, imprison, and murder the physical descendants of the sons of Jacob, having yet to inherit the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. The coming international Jewish persecution will be especially bloody because inside the world's greatest haven for the wandering Jews, 14th Amendment America, and the infallible Masonic Mormon prophet, possibly the present Gordon B. Hinckley, will aid the Jesuit general in this final annihilation. So that's a pretty horrible and ghastly statement to to read, but these are the kind of people who have a, a, a point of view in history that we can't ignore it. And in, in a lot of people are stepping back from uh, Eric John Phelps and from some of these other teachers, and they're perhaps terrified by the things that they're learning and by the information that's being revealed that has been impossible to get get their hands on. So, really, the information itself is really what's the most profound about these revelations. As people, we, we as, as Americans having this history as a Protestant America of European descent. We haven't had any access to a lot of these records, these historical teachings. We're kind of dumbed down in the public classrooms, and we have no knowledge about the long-term vendettas and the motivations of the kings of Europe and the bankers and the Vatican and what the the Jesuit order, what their plans are for this country. And we know that just because uh, several hundred years go by doesn't mean that they forget what their plan is, even though apparently we here in America— can't remember what our American Revolution was all about and what we're fighting for. When we've taken the stand and our ancestors and our forefathers have taken the stand and we cannot barter it away and we cannot at this point in this, in, in this war for American independence that persists in our lives on a daily basis and, and, and in the future we have to continue to make the effort to remain free or else we won't maintain those freedoms. So in order to kind of wrap this up, we're taking a closer look. All this discussion about Albert Pike and Mormonism—it's leading up to another point of view, like a larger scale of history that you probably haven't heard yet. You haven't—it been, hasn't been fully elucidated to you. And so, in order to kind of make this happen, to where we can see the larger picture, we're going to. Uh, Try to establish some of these background facts that are not easily gotten. Even if you have the Google and you know Encyclopedia Britannica, you might not be able to put these these pieces of these puzzles together. So this is kind of a crash course, a fast forwarding of the, the historical discussion as it relates to American independence, the Protestant Reformation, the Jesuit Counter Reformation, and the purposes and plans of the Vatican as we go into the future into you know, the Twitter age, a cyber age of uh, low-hanging satellites in orbit providing Wi-Fi and Google mapping. And just, you know, we need to understand what the profound causes of the uh, these militant secret societies is. So that we can understand what they're trying to accomplish, even though we have apparently just lost focus as we've gotten... Away from all the propaganda, the, the, the deception of the media, the pornographic violence of Hollywood, the uh, even these even these new revelations of the, every every couple of weeks, the uh, marshals are finding all these missing children and busting these pedophile rings, and it's profound knowledge that's coming out across the newswire. But apparently, Americans can't focus on it; they can't see what's really going on because they're too busy with Oprah or with politics. Or with the distractions. And ultimately we have to be responsible as a nation. To the founding principles of our constitution. Or we will lose it all. So let's listen to an interesting clip here. Uh, We have to decide. What is history? History is the battlefield itself. And we need to understand what the war is. What the sides are. What the fight is all about. Or else we will be destroyed. And um. Here, let's take a look here. We have Visigoth and Eric John Phelps. You decide for yourself. Because
2: also the kings and the nobles united with the people against the papacy. So that's what essentially happened, and then from then on, we understand history in Europe as the forces of the Counter-Reformation, the Jesuits, versus the forces of the Reformation,
5: particularly the Calvinists. And so we can assume also that the, uh, the monarchies were not happy with the United States because they gave the common person something they would not, and that is property. Is that correct? That's
2: right. The monarchies hated the United States because it was an example to the world, which Benjamin Franklin, or which William Penn, pardon me, called the whole experiment. He said this was an example to the world that men could indeed truly govern themselves if indeed they were tempered with the teaching of the Bible, of the Reformation Bible. And so uh, all the other nations then sought to do the very same thing. I just finished a study on Benito Juarez and Benito Juarez set up a constitutional republic in Mexico and he is regarded as the savior of Mexico and the greatest Mexican statesman who has ever lived. And what Benito Juarez realized was that uh, the papacy had to go. So he expelled the Archbishop of Mexico. He expelled all five Roman bishops in that country. He kicked out all the Jesuits, all the secret societies, the Sisters of Charities, all of them. He forbade them to parade themselves in any religious garb. He forbade them to ring the bells. Benito Juarez brought wealth and beginning prosperity to Mexico. And so this so enraged the monarchs of Europe that England, France, and Spain into Mexico over a supposed financial issue, but then uh, uh, England and Spain withdrew, but France stayed because uh, Napoleon III was in charge of Maximilian there and wanted to extend the Holy Alliance into Mexico, which then uh, Lincoln, shortly after the war, said, You're not going to do that, assembled the federal
5: troops on the border and told Maximilian to leave. Now, I uh, rather obliquely uh, alluded to um, at, at first immigration that involve Roman Catholics, and I would say this is not something that's anti-Roman Catholics, but rather engineered by the Vatican using Roman Catholics. But can you talk about the situation in Ireland, both the story that we get supposedly in our history books and the real deal with their um, leaving and immigrating to uh, the United States in the 19th century. Sure.
2: Um, In fact, I'm descended from those people. My grandfather, Callahan, was an Irishman that came over from Ireland. Actually, his parents came over. His father was uh, very much Irish, and uh, they came over as a result of uh, this great exodus out of Ireland. Now, what caused this was not the potato famine. What caused this was the Jesuits were in control of the English monarchy since King George III. That is from
5: about, what, uh, 1760 onward. So it didn't make any difference, if I could just interject this, that um, England had gone Anglican. That's just window dressing for us. That's window dressing. Right.
2: What the, the, the important thing is the Jesuits controlled the court, and they controlled the parliament through men like Viscount uh, uh, Palmerson, And others. Remember, Viscount Palmerston was against those good Roman Catholic Italians who overthrew the temple power of the Pope in 1870 and were against the Italians when they revolted in 1849. Viscount Palmerston was against that. And he would not allow those Italians, when they fled to Malta, to stay there because it was a British holding. So the Roman Catholic, British governor, or governor of Malta, kicked those Italian Roman Catholics off the island. So the whole British monarchy is controlled by the Vatican, by the, jet, by the black pope, no later than 1815. And so the Vatican then decides that their champions, with whom they are going to conquer North America, will be the Irish And so what they did in the 1840s, late 1840s, was they used Victoria and her prime minister to cause a huge, massive famine in Ireland. It is reported that eight ships left Ireland daily loaded with Irish meats and vegetables to foreign ports so as to purpose the forced starvation of nearly a million of my Irish brethren And therefore, driving the survivors out of Ireland into North America.
5: So they actually had the stores, they had the crops, they had the meat. Absolutely, and it was well, I guess, forcibly uh, egressed out of Ireland to other places. Absolutely, they sent them off to foreign ports. Uh, Not that you have to know this. I'm just curious. uh, Who's the prime minister with Victoria? That wasn't Disraeli yet, was it? Disraeli was later. I believe Palmerston was earlier. That's right, Parliament. But Disraeli was also involved. All right. Now, with this forced immigration, that would necessarily mean if you. Believe that there is a conspiracy that uh, the Vatican had, and, and the monarchies as well. If they are joined at the hip, and I want you to speak to that, that they wanted to see um, an event that would take place some maybe two decades later or a decade later that would start to uh, kneecap, if you will, the constitutional republic known as the United States. Right. What
2: they then what they had planned was. Was They they had to plan to foment a revolution, and all they had to do was read George Washington's Farewell Address, which is America's greatest state paper. And what he warned about was foreign influence that would cause a geographical division of the country, north and south, so as to foment a war, and thus the Constitution would fall. And he warned about that very strongly. So that's exactly what the Jesuits did. They brought their Irish Roman Catholics primarily into the northern cities. And then they taxed the southern people on their tobacco and cotton, and the tax that was collected was spent primarily on the development of northern industry, which really infuriated the southerners. And of course, the vast majority of them
1: were Protestants. Right. And also big states' rights advocates, right? Absolutely.
2: Because because the Constitution was a specific grant of powers. Nothing more than what was delineated in the Constitution was granted to the federal government by the states. All the other powers that were not specifically granted were retained by the states. And it's just like any other contract. If, if, you have, if you decide to have me build your house, and we enter into a contract, and I agree to buy these materials, and only these materials, what if I just decided to go buy all these other materials, and that gave you the bill? See, there's no implied powers in, in the contract that you and I enter into, and there was no implied powers with, with the contract that the states entered into. It was specific, express, granted power, and that is delineated in the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions
5: written by Madison and Jefferson. Do you have any kind of statistics uh, about how many Irish did come in through that time period in the 19th century? And and if there were any inducements for them to come over? I mean, besides the fact that, you know, there was this famine. I
2: can't remember the exact amount. I believe it was in excess of a million. I'm not sure. What I do know is it continued for many years. And it was most interesting that even after the war, what later became the White Star Line
5: of J.P. Morgan, continue
2: to bring in the Irish
5: Roman Catholic. That, was that involved at all? And I'm, I'm digressing for a second, but just out of curiosity, the White Star Line, did that have anything to do with uh, the Titanic? Absolutely.
2: Uh-huh. White Star Line,
5: oh, the Titanic, Titanic and the Olympus. What a surprise. Uh-huh. <laughs> all right, so so what we're um, alluding to here is that uh, the European European monarchies, the Vatican's backed up by the Jesuit muscle, uh, forced an Irish immigration into the United States specifically to arm the Union Army to Correct. do two things, I would assume. One, um, uh, you know, cut deeply into the Protestant America and two, to get rid of states' rights and to bring about a type of government, a federal government, which really, I mean, Eric, I don't know how you feel about it, but it's as it's about a state run as the Soviets. Correct. There's no difference.
2: The, because the Jesuits run Russia, It's like they run this country. So what they did was they set up a national government, because what we had was a federal or confederate republic of the United States. So they set up a national government after they decimated the Protestant South with its War of Annihilation remembering that both the Radical Red Republicans and the Southern Democrat, the leadership of both parties, was controlled by the Jesuits. That includes Jefferson Davis, that includes Robert E. Lee, because Lee was a traitor, betraying his own troops at Gettysburg. So they controlled both sides, ensuring that the South would lose, and then instituted their horrible reconstruction,
5: intending to completely destroy the Protestant South. Was there a time early on in the Civil War where it was thought that if uh, the Confederates had um, had struck, um, or at least followed through in their early victories, that they, they might have actually have turned the tide early well, in the war? The, the first menaces would have ended the war
2: had uh, Jackson been allowed to pursue the enemy into Washington. All right, Jackson's
5: not part of the program, so he gets off, doesn't he? He gets killed,
2: and I just discovered that at his uh, death, at Chan- when he was wounded at Chancellorsville, there happened to be a Confederate officer there in uniform that nobody recognized. So, no, Jackson had to be eliminated because so, he would have won. If he would have been at Gettysburg, it would have been a great victory, and then it would have been on to Washington.
5: All right. Now clear me up on this if you do have a uh, deep background. On that. Uh, Jackson was not shot dead and killed on the battlefield. They brought him back um Right, they brought him back, and he wounded, they had to amputate his arm, and he caught infection, supposedly, and then died. Okay, and that's because he probably wasn't playing ball with the master plan, or at least didn't know that was going on. Right, the the Irish really didn't, the Irish people didn't know what was going on, they were just doing what the priest told them to do. All right. so now, uh, as a result of this, um, the Civil War is fought, the Union wins... And what happens to 14th Amendment America that was different than before? Okay, uh, the war is fought, the whole nation loses,
2: Um, we are then reduced to the forced ratification of the 14th Amendment, because remember that all the southern states were put under martial law, they were divided into five military districts, Mm -hmm. overseen by the cruelest of military commanders, including Butler the Beast in Louisiana. And until the states would ratify, they would remain under martial law. And so the last states to leave were Virginia in 1870 and Texas in 1870. And so when they ratified the 14th uh, Amendment and gave their ironclad oath to the federal government, then they uh, withdrew with their federal occupation. And with the 16th Amendment, what that did was this. The 14th Amendment, right, okay. But the 14th Amendment, what it did was this. It reversed, quote, the origin and character of American citizenship, unquote, according to the words of the Supreme Court. And what it did was it made U.S. citizenship, quote, paramount and dominant, unquote, and it made state citizenship, quote, subordinate and derivative, unquote. So it reversed it, and this is exactly what the Jesuits wanted to do. This was the whole purpose of the war, was to centralize power in Washington, conforming the government of the United States to be governed precisely as the Vatican City government is being run. It's so all
5: centralized. Then in
2: 1871, they
5: incorporated Washington, D.C. Now, you could say, and I believe this to be true, it's not my idea, but I do agree with it, that what happened at that time was almost a dry run on a smaller scale, for a federation, which obviously uh, the Vatican is looking toward, as are a number of uh, New World Order types and groups uh, in the the world yet to come, that that doing that to the United States almost was a dry run by federating those states. That's correct. What they did, for example,
2: to the state of Virginia in in the war, when they divided it, created the illegal state of West Germany in 1863, because Virginia was a most Protestant Presbyterian Calvinist state. It was the keystone state. It was the state that made our country. Virginia had to be divided and conquered. What they did to Virginia in the 1860s, they did to Germany in the 1940s. All right.
5: Um, now, we're past that point. Um, the United States, as an experiment, as a constitutional republic, nothing like it before, uh, now is, is has been, as I would say, kneecap. It's been wounded. And... Uh, And would you agree that it really never, ever has um, gotten close back to the prominence and the freedom with which people lived their lives prior to the Civil War? Correct. The,
2: The Federal Republic of the United States was destroyed. It no longer exists, and on its ruins was created this, what I call in my book, Pope's Holy Roman 14th Amendment American Empire. And with this Holy Roman 14th American Empire, it wasn't quite complete at the end of the war. They had to destroy the Indian nations. So from 1865 to 1895, the Jesuits specifically Pierre de Schmidt, who was the most powerful Jesuit in the the plains at that time, uh, led and coached the Roman Catholic Philip Sheridan, the general of the army, uh, into the conquering and the subjugation of all the Indian tribes, putting them on reservations after mass killing them. It was one of the Vatican's ethnic cleansings in North America. It was America's 30 years war here in North America. And it was General Sheridan that Roman Catholic servant of Pierre de Schmidt who said, quote, the only good Indian is a dead Indian, unquote. So that entire annihilation
5: came from Rome. Uh, for people who are hearing you for the first time, as I had once upon a time years ago, It sounds very implausible. Your first reaction is, well, why didn't I hear about that in my history books? But, you know, we obviously well know on this show, and those listeners who do listen realize that those books have been sanitized. But you know what? When I look back, uh, and Harry and I have both, you know, delved back into uh, books that we might have read before, but it's uncanny how many times the Jesuits pop up. And you know what? They're spoken about almost in the same vein as we now talk about Islamist terrorists. They were a real pain. Correct, correct. In fact, I just recently had something forwarded
2: to me that a Jesuit community house in Austria has decided to give over the pistol that was used (laughs) for the assassination of (laughs) Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1914. Yeah. and they had that
5: weapon for many, many years until they recently gave it over this year to the Austrian Military Museum. You know, we did that last week, I believe. We talked about the Browning that they called, right. uh, that killed eight and a half million people. You know, obviously triggering World War One. Right. And, and, and the Jesuits said, oh, we just, I, we just happened upon it, you know? Right,
0: right. All right, so we went pretty long on this episode and we're establishing some kind of aberrant, abstract facts of history together along a train of logic that you haven't really considered before, and we're gonna to continue to do that on these episodes, um, You know, I need you to look at the big picture. And you're an American, most likely you're an American if you're listening to this episode, and you need to take it seriously that the, the freedoms and the liberties established by our Constitution and for the protection of our families and for our, the protection of our lives and our rights are very serious things. And we we cannot say that the totalitarianism and the communism that has been destroying the world over the 18th and 19th century will not come here and turn this place into an absolute ruinous heap, a smoldering heap, just to go into the waistband waistband of history here. So we will come back again with another episode in the future and we'll take this discussion further. And like I said, please take time to pray and to get yourself ready to be exposed to the truth of history that's informed by a history and a current of, of uh, documentation and journalism that you haven't been, been exposed to before. So this has been Looking Glass Forum. And this is another penetrating discussion to go into our files here, and we look forward to having you back again next time.